What's up my fellow ambitious poker players and welcome to the Mechanics of Poker podcast in which me, Renee, aka The Wacko and Adam Carmichael deconstruct high stakes poker players, figuring out what it is about them, how they think, what they do that makes them so successful with an extra focus on the obstacles they faced and the skills they had to develop to surpass them. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition. If you are ambitious about making more progress in your poker career, go over to their site, pokerambition.com and find out which service is best for you. But without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Hi there, fellow poker enthusiasts. Welcome back to another episode here on the Mechanics of Poker podcast, episode number eight, I think we're already. We got a premiere for today's episode as we have the youngest high stakes player on that we've had so far. He dropped out of school like many to play poker and currently plays up to 5k NL, both heads up and six max cash games. And no, he didn't start at an illegal age. I just wanted to make that very clear to maybe some poker sites who are watching. Shout out to PokerStars. He just moved up really quickly as it took him only three and a half years to get to 2K. So far, one of the fastest rises that we've had on. Now, normally you would say we are going to be talking with some sort of a whisk kit with an IQ of 160, uh, just smooth sailed in everything he did. But he actually mentioned it was work ethic. He had to always work hard. And he believes that hard work beats talent, meaning that with the right work ethic and approach, you can follow in his footsteps which is going to make this podcast extra interesting. He has shared his insights into poker before, both on Twitch, YouTube, and as a coach for Run at Once, in which his videos receive an insane amount of popularity compared to other video makers. I'm talking about Luke Clenty Johnson. He's going to be our guest here today. Adam, what are you excited for with Mr. Clenty coming on? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to... uh distilling how Clancy has been able to rise to the top so quick. Like this is our eighth guest on the show and Clancy potentially is our fastest riser to the high stakes. So I want to distill what he's done differently in his approaches. Very often success leaves clues. And if someone's doing something faster or better than the competition, they're generally doing something different, which we want to pay attention to. I'm very intrigued how he deals with downswings. And generally when you're moving up stakes aggressively, you're going to experience downswings at a kind of faster rate every almost month or six months you're experiencing a very monumental downswing relative to what you've experienced so i'm really interested to hear how he's dealt with all that and also his approach to learning like you said his videos are incredibly popular everyone loves his strategy videos on run at once so i'm really intrigued to know uh, yeah basically more about his thought processes around poker and his overall approach so yeah what are you looking forward to on this guest Rene? i think also confidence wise normally players i think we talked about with goose score as well right he needs to put in a big sample at a certain stake and have like that nice graph he was saying you could you could see you could see the the twinkle in his eyes when he said you know the nice graph which is kind of a confirmation like okay i've beat the stake you know i'm moving on and it sounds like if you move on so fast you're not waiting you don't have the urge to wait for a very big variance free sample in order to show to yourself i beat it the game right i think he moved on to the next stake before he got that confirmation. So that I think requires a lot of confidence. So very excited to start a conversation with Mr. Clenty. All right, there he is. 
Luke, how are you, man? Thank you for coming on. Doing very well. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Appreciate it. So actually, uh, I wanted to have you on a little bit earlier. Uh, I contacted you, I think it was in the beginning of the year. And you responded to me, and I'm going to quote, I'm downswinging hard lately and don't feel like being social, which I completely understand. The last thing I want to do when I'm in a downswing is talk to people. All I want to do is sit behind my computer and try to find a way out of it, right? So I responded to you, um, let me quote, completely understand, no worries. Maybe after you turn things around, we can have you on and talk about how you did it. Flex emoji. And here you are. Okay, so we're going to start off the pod a little bit different than usual, given uh, our history here. Um, pay attention. I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to fire some questions. Obviously, the first thing everyone is very curious about is, did you get out of the downswing, right? That would be question number one. The second one is, is locking yourself up from the outside world your standard protocol in downswing? And the third one would be, what are some things you do to try to turn it around. Okay, so start with start. Um, yeah, I did get out of the downswing. I actually think that was the end of last year. I have I had a history with failed shots at 5K and I'm just like, I was really fed up with that because it was a rinse repeat process of win low, lose at high. So it was, those were the reasons why, if, if I have a downswing, usually I'm pretty good at dealing with it actually. Um, but I was just really fed up of this rinse repeat um, mode of lose everything at 5K and then yeah, move back down. I think that was around like November, December time. Um, so I did get out of that downswing eventually. Uh, two, no, you shouldn't lock yourself up. I'm, I mean, I wasn't fully locking myself up. I just didn't feel like coming on a podcast, you know. Um, but I still was, right. you know, exercising, going out, and tr I wasn't socializing as much as I would usually. But I was still doing things. Uh, I definitely don't recommend. I, I used to do that a lot and just almost like going into hibernation mode. Um, there's a word, oh, I, I used to call myself a hermit because I would never go out when I was losing. I would just kind of stay inside and, and just kind of, and not even regrind. It's not even like I was being a hermit and just playing poker all the time and studying poker. It was just being like a slob and playing video games and just like recovering that way, which is obviously not the thing to go, uh, thing mm -hmm. to do. Also as well, partly it's the weather in, in Newcastle. We we're just talking about it, but November, December, Newcastle weather is just crap. Um, it's that it's dark at half three. So it's it's really depressing if you're like getting crushed at high stakes and then you can't even go out for a walk because it's dark by 3.30 or like 4 o'clock. So that's also part of it. Whereas now it's nice and it's getting better. And three, I can't remember what was, what was the third question. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. We just got started that fire of three questions. I, ca I, I catch you by surprise. The third one was this. What do you try to do to turn it around, to turn things around? So you managed to get out of the downswing. What did you do? to manage to get out of the downswing? I mean, everything stays pretty consistent. Do my studying, do my playing. I think the only thing that I change up is I take a few more breaks. I'm not someone who just plays a lot when they lose. I do the opposite. Actually, I play less. I don't like losing. I don't find it fun. So I typically take a few more breaks. Like I might take a weekend off, for example. Um, and also I um, like offer sessions with friends as well, like extra study sessions. So I usually study with Ben on Wednesdays. And a couple of times I asked him if he wanted to do extra things. And then also with the Jericho as well, I offered him um, like a session too. So, well, I say offered like it was, you know, not like that. Basically like asking people if they want to do some 
um, let's say like extracurricular studies, and that's a way of me getting mm-hmm. back on the on the wagon. So I would say everything stays pretty consistent, apart from a few extra breaks and then a few extra study sessions. Otherwise, pretty normal. Yeah, I think I think the response of wanting to play more and wanting to lock yourself in makes a lot of sense, right? You're in a situation that you don't like and you want to do everything in your power to turn that around. And usually then you think, okay, I should just play more. I should I should work harder. But if you think about it, playing more when you're in a downswing, you're playing at a lower win rate. So playing more only makes the downswing bigger. But to then basically take a step back and do something different, it's so counterintuitive for the mind, right? Yeah, I'm not someone who does very well at losing. I find it really frustrating. I don't necessarily like have monkey tilt issues or anything, but I just don't play my best when I'm losing. I find it boring and I get distracted. I'll go onto Twitch or two plus two or something. And like while I'm playing poker and I notice, okay, I'm just not even focused. Whereas if I'm winning, um, I'm, you know, lasered into the tables. So yeah, that's definitely part of it. My focus isn't there. My win rate's not what it would be if I was even just doing a break even session. But if I'm getting crushed, I'm just bored. I was actually quite surprised when uh, when I read in your questionnaire that you also wrote down that you're easily annoyed and frustrated. Whereas in your videos, uh, or, uh, at, at uh, for example, at Run It Once, or uh, I saw a couple of your videos on YouTube, Twitch, you come across to me as like a GTO bot, you know? So either you're really, you really try to keep it in, or we're watching like take number 57. But in which way do you then well, show your frustration? And does it also, does it impact your game as well? I don't, I think it has to in some way. I don't, I don't think I could just say, oh no, it doesn't impact my game at all. I definitely, like I said, I don't spew off stacks, but uh, I might not check fold a hand that's really, really frisky where it's like, oh, sorry, fringy, where I might decide, ah, oh, I'm just not going to fold it this time. Maybe that happens occasionally. Also, my levels of frustration, um, I don't necessarily get annoyed about getting called or something like that. It's more so if someone does something really stupid where I don't, I, I, I think about it, it doesn't make sense. And then I think, oh, they're, they're a professional, they should be better than that. That kind of annoys me. So I don't get annoyed by getting called it. It's more so if a professional does something silly, that annoys me more than like having a really bad day where I got called back to back to back. So it's more like quite nuanced in the frustration, if that makes sense. I might get annoyed about someone C-bet on a board. Like let's let's say uh, it comes down ace-king-5 monotone, button versus big blind single race pot, where you should check a lot, and they just auto-bet a third. That will really piss me off. Even though it's like a single race pot and I shouldn't care and they're making a mistake, that will piss me off more than someone stacking me in a fine way because as far as I'm concerned, they played the hand well. If they stacked me and they played it well, then they deserve the money. But if they mess up some small C-bet in a single race pot, I'm mad. Maybe not mad, but I'm like frustrated at that. So it's weird. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So yeah, yeah. You you hold your fellow, uh, fellow pros to a certain standard and if they don't live up to the standard and in the combination of the fact that you're losing, you're like... How can I lose to these fucking monkeys? You know, they're they're sea betting this ace king five mono, which which I would probably do as well. So uh oh, I'm gonna get Clenty killed. I'm Next sorry, time I'm just sorry. gonna out of bet just just ju- just to tilt Clenty up. Okay, now now I got your tilt triggers. I mean, there's a genuine strategy there. Just just auto bet a spot you know is not a thing, and then you'll throw me off, and then I'll just like bet into you on the turn because I'm angry, and then you can just check shove your value. Easy game. I I I do recognize this the, the this form of 
tilts. If I remember in the past, like the people that I would say then are my most nemesis or trigger something tilt are usually the worst, the worst pros. But I think it's also at some point I was reflecting more to myself. Like I know that they're bad. Okay. And I'm not taking the max advantage of it. So the kind of the frustration is that I know there's more and I, I should really, really pound on them, but I'm not doing it sufficiently. So I'm tr trying to take responsibility. Mm. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think mine is because, yeah, it does. You're, that definitely does. I think mine is if you're playing a game of chess or something where if they make a mistake, you just beat them there and then. I wouldn't be as annoyed. But someone can make a mistake and you can still just lose. And you can lose over and over and over again because variance is the thing. So I think if the variance factor wasn't there, I wouldn't find these mistakes so annoying. But it's the fact that they can do that and they can get away with it on the short term. Even though long term they should get punished, which they do, I imagine. But short term they can still beat me up for that day, week, month, and that annoys me. All right. I'm curious how many people are listening are going to take advantage of that. So if you see a, sudden, a lot of unfrequent stuff, you know, range bet, range check boards suddenly get bet into you. Cool down, take a deep breath. Listen, li listen yeah. to Ben here. You know, mm -hmm. do a little session with him. Ben, Ben, help me out here. I think I'm learning. I'm learning a bit about myself here. Just even saying that we're a very educational podcast, even for the guest. So that's good to hear. Adam, I'm sure you've heard this uh, form of, can we call it tilt before? Yeah, I have heard this form many times, and. I'd say if frustration's building into the game, there's some form of tilt there. How well you control that will probably impact how much we would define that as tilt. And yeah, some form of projection bias where basically you're holding your opponent to a certain standard and you expect him to take a certain line. Normally a line that you'll be comfortable playing against and you'll be able to exploit him. And then if he does something out of the ordinary, it creates this sense of frustration like you've talked about and injustice that how can he do this and get away with it. And if you won every pot when he did that, be no problem because you'd be right awesome i get the rewards but because you don't get the short-term rewards for that and he does it, there's this double frustration because it's almost like someone answering the quiz wrong and getting all the all the praise from the teachers and you're like that's the wrong answer i know the right answer why is he getting rewarded so yeah definitely very common and yeah i like how you talked about the downswing overall so i, I probably had more conversations around downswings than any other topic is the, the kind of the go-to subject players approach me for and yeah, I think kind of the biggest thing that I see players like yourself and successful players who come out of downswings, very often they don't make that many changes. They try to keep most of their habits the same. They normally lower some of their playing time like you did, and they study a bit more. They reach out to people a bit more, but most things stay quite static. They try to still put in volume, still keep their habits in place, still exercise, still do the things that were working. Whereas those who struggle with downswing do the opposite. They go real extreme. Either they'll just play like crazy and start chasing losses, or they'll just not play at all, and they'll start studying loads. And all their habits go to shit. They go to bed late, they, they turn at the slobs when they had good habits, and all, all of a sudden a downswing that would have lasted maybe a few weeks, a month, drags on for three, four months, and everything starts to crumble. So yeah, I, I like what you were saying about most things staying static in terms of your habits, and yeah, just more studying. So yeah, I think that's a really, really good lesson to anyone who goes through a downswing. Don't change many things. Study a bit more to build more confidence. Maybe lower your playing time because you're probably not putting in your uh, best volume at that time. But yeah, I think overall, keeping habits static is the way to go. So yeah, let's go back to where it all began for you. So you've had a very fast poker projection through to the high stakes. And I know you started your career in your early 20s. So could you take us back to that time when you first started poker? I know you dropped out of school. Was that to, uh, 
to pursue poker? What was happening just at the start before you before you started playing poker professionally? No, that's totally separate. Um, I dropped out because I was honestly addicted to video games. I had long story, but that was 13, 14, 15, 14 years old. And uh, I started playing poker when I was 20. So yeah, that was completely separate. I had this like um, period of doing nothing for a while. Um, I went traveling in 2015. And when I got back, I just didn't want to go back to my old jobs, which were just working in an office, doing some accounts work. Um, and I had some money saved up. So I decided that I would just kind of take a shot at poker, which honestly, in hindsight, was was sincerely a terrible idea. Uh, was really, really bad because I didn't know anything. Like my exposure to poker at that time was quite literally playing Zynga poker on Facebook. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating. I had no experience at all. Um, and I got lucky in a few ways where I was watching Twitch streams. I remember this this um, this one time where I was playing this. Also, when I started playing poker, I was playing tournaments because I was watching Jamie Stables on Twitch. That was like the thing to do in my mind. I remember I was doing well in this like 440, like $4.40 PSKO. I had like $60 in bounties. And I put in the Twitch chat. I was such a such an idiot back then. I put in the Twitch chat saying, hey, guys, I'm doing really well in the tournament. Wish me luck. <laughs> this is so horrible even thinking about. And this, this guy messaged back saying, oh, here's what you should do. He gave me some beginner strategy that I didn't even know of. And we ended up becoming, fr uh, becoming friends. And he kind of leapfrogged me forward from playing tournaments to playing six max cash. Um, and I kind of just went from there, just picking up friends and them helping me and just kind of just grinding it a lot and being motivated to, or at least maybe not motivated, but being just determined to just do the same thing and have success with it. But it was very poor. It was a poor decision in hindsight, just to kind of put all my eggs in that basket. It sounds like a very random starting point uh, for starting on Facebook, yeah. playing Zinger Poker and then playing yes yeah, some tournaments which might not be in a suit to you so what were your expectations that time obviously there's one element where you're trying to avoid the nine-to-five job so i'm guessing the, the early expectations might be enough money to support yourself when you went into the poker world what were you expecting in that moment well i wasn't expecting to become a millionaire or something like i guess i was making myself look worse than what it was the reality of the situation was that i knew you could make money i wasn't expecting to make millions but just objectively, I knew that you could make money from playing poker. And my goal was to just not work a job because I was really hating that. I was just hating working a nine to five for someone else that doesn't really care about me. Like objectively, I hate the idea of doing that. So my goal was to just not do that ultimately. And I knew that poker was a way that that could happen, especially watching streamers on Twitch back then. That was when Twitch was really big with poker. You had Jay Carver and Jamie Staples and... I think that was before Doug Polk, but there's a lot of big streamers back then, like big, big streamers. And yeah, that was my goal was just not, not do a nine to five. It wasn't necessarily to become the best or anything, but it was just to not work a normal job, make do via yeah. poker instead. Mm. So in the beginning, when we start our poker careers, we often have this very romantic picture of playing poker professionally. When was the first time you ran into an obstacle early in your career that made you doubt your choice of playing poker? I don't think I've had that, if I'm being honest. I think, um, no, I've, I've got this, I, I guess one, of, one quality that I have is that I'm really stubborn with things. 
I'm either completely in or completely out. And with poker, I've always been completely in. There've, there's obviously been like annoying sessions here and there. I'm like, oh, this is really frustrating. But I've never thought poker was the wrong decision. Like now I can look back at my career and say that I shouldn't have gone into poker at the time. It was really, really bad. But if I'm thinking presently throughout my career, I've never thought that this was a bad decision. Even now, like I'm happy that I did poker or I'm happy that I'm in poker. And I've always thought that. So no, I've, I've never had a time where I've thought poker is not for me, to be honest. I like that mindset, the completely in or the completely out. I think from mm. the outside looking in, especially like the, your decision to quit school, completely out. I know you said you were playing video games at the time. But I think having the self-awareness to know like, what am I going to go all in with in my life? And for you, it sounded like when you do decide on that, like I said, you're very stubborn, but also like very committed. I'm guessing like they go kind of hand in hand where you apply yourself to go, right, I'm going to make this work. So uh, that all in, completely in, as you said, mentality sounds like it maybe overcame any of the initial doubts that a lot of players might have. Uh, so for yourself, like, did you have any role models around you? Obviously, you've got these Twitch streamers who are who you're looking at. Anyone in your immediate circle or anyone you reached out to in, in the early days that give you a bit of hope that you could pursue poker further? Um, yeah, I think that I'm not sure about right at the start. Maybe right at the start it was the it was Jamie Staples on Twitch. Um, then I said I met that guy and I started playing cash. I think I looked up to a guy, maybe you know of him, Rene, uh, Martin C. You must have played against him lots. Uh, the, the, the nickname sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah, he was a uh, 200-500 zoom grinder back in like 2015 or 2016, probably 2016. And he was um, posting a pretty successful blog in 2 plus 2 and just posting these crazy hand histories and really nice graphs. And this was back when I was playing 10 or 16 or 25 and now. And I'm not sure, I'm, I must have asked him to add me on Skype. And for some reason he said yes. And he kind of just gave me advice. But just the fact that he even um, exposed himself to me, that sounds terrible saying that. Um, but like, you know, he, he did a, answered a few hand histories. <laughs> he answered a few hand histories, gave me some bankroll management advice told me that, you know, it's not, poker's not so hard. These guys who are doing really well are not that good and you can definitely do that. Just that kind of made me believe that I could do it. So I would say I definitely looked up to him because he was a guy who had made, in my mind, again, I wasn't aspiring to become like a guy playing 20K an hour. It was just, I wanted to become a 200 Zoom and 500 Zoom player. And he was doing that and he was actually, he was doing very well from what I remember. And he told me that I could do that. So I, I would say it was him. And now um, I would say the only guy I would look up to would be probably like Linus because I think he's he plays an approach similar to mine in terms of this, he's quite theoretical. Obviously, he does exploits here and there, but he definitely bases everything around theory and he's the best at it, in my opinion. So now it would be him. I think there's the only two people I can think of that I'd look up to in the poker world. Yeah, perfect. And you started out playing MTTs, and I think you had a period of your career where you played heads up. And then what made you transition to uh, six max ring games? What was the kind of transition period for you? Well, I went tournaments for like a few months, um, and then I quit that. Pretty sure if I look at my shark scope, it's just like a crashing line going down um, when I started doing that. And then I started playing cash from, I would say, like November 2015 all the way through until now. And Heads Up came, uh, I'm thinking around 2018. It, honestly, it came around because I was bored of si I was bored of playing six max. It was just same monotonous grind of playing 
I was also playing 100 zoom and 200 zoom where it's the same grind every day. So I started playing heads up just because it was something different. And now I'm still playing heads up. Um, I, I do both. I'm, I depends on what the games run. Sometimes the heads up lobbies are um, non-existent and there's nothing running. Other days I just play heads up only. So I'm now just a heads up slash ring cash game player. and I don't play any tournaments. So you've had quite a fast rise for the poker rankings and other than being someone who's quite stubborn and you sort of kind of go completely all in with something, what are some of the traits that you think may have allowed you to uh, pick up poker quite quickly? You might not realize that yourself. You might not classify yourself as a quick learner. Was there any kind of skills or traits about yourself that on reflection have made you a good suit for poker? Um, well, I think firstly, it's like I moved from, it took me, four years to get from nothing to 1k now which i don't think super fast and there's definitely players out there who did it in half the time um and and i think a lot of that is down to some people just cap themselves at a certain stake some people are just doing very very well at 50 an hour or 100 now particularly the zoom pools like uh, they're doing well at 50 zoom or 100 zoom and they just limit themselves to just being a player at that stake and they don't move up so I think firstly, it's just I allowed myself to move up. I didn't set this as my cap. I just kept on moving until I felt like I wasn't one of the better players. Um, and secondly, maybe it, honestly, it might just come down to firstly, like I said, the the not capping myself, and then always just happy with what I'm doing. I never thought that poker wasn't the thing to do. It was always this is still reasonable. I'm still having fun. I'm still enjoying it. I definitely prefer to do this than a normal job. Um, yeah, apart from that, I don't think I have any any innate attributes to like when when people say like you need to be good at numbers or you need to be good with psychology or things like that. Maybe in other other forms of poker, like live poker or something. But online, I don't think you need to be a math whiz to to be a very successful poker player. I think you just need to be consistent and determined and um, believe in yourself as well. If you if you're having doubts and then you're not playing higher stakes, then that's obviously gonna that's gonna hinder you. Where did that initial belief come from for you? So I think we talked about this, me and Rennie off the air, where Goose Core was basically saying in a previous podcast that he always needed to see a nice pretty graph before moving up stakes to give him that kind of reassurance and confidence that he's beating the games. It seems like for you, potentially you've moved up a bit quicker, definitely a bit quicker than the average. Um, you seem to have had confidence and not had much self-doubt. So uh, where do you think that initial confidence to move up stakes and not cap yourself has come from? I don't know. I feel like that's just part of me. Um, so I can't really, like, I definitely, especially heads up, there are some guys in heads up that I am outclassed by, and that feels bad, knowing that I'm just losing against this guy. But I don't really have that in six-handed, maybe I'm just delusional, but I feel like the only way I wouldn't have confidence is if someone's just doing things better than me, which does happen, um, but I need, I need to feel like I'm outperforming someone more than they're outperforming me for me to just have the confidence. So I, I guess what I do is I just start feeling confident as as a get-go. So if I move up to a new stake, I'm feeling good. And then if I just kind of get overrun by good plays, I will then think, okay, moving back down. That did happen once in my career. I remember, I don't know the year now. Um, yeah, actually I do. So at the end of 2016, I was playing 50 an hour. And I had like a one big blind win rate over 50,000 hands. I remember because it was in my blog. And despite having, you know, not, not much basic, I wasn't losing. Over 50,000 hands. And at the start of the next year, I moved back down to 25 because I didn't feel confident. I felt like I was just winging it and and getting lucky. So that was the only time in my career where I moved down based on not feeling like I was adequate um, to, to play that stake. 
Um, otherwise, I've never moved down based on that. I've only ever moved down on, on fading a shot or something. So I feel like I, I have that innate confidence. And then unless I get proven otherwise by people outperforming me, then I just keep on doing what I'm doing. I love that. It's often the inverse of what I see in a lot of players. I think a lot of players, when they start playing a new stake, they instantly assume they're going to be outclassed. They instantly assume the player pool is going to be really tough. And even before the card's been dealt, they're starting to go, oh, here we go. This is going to be challenging. Whereas you, because of the work you put in, because of the consistency you put into your game, you, you go in there very confident and go, right, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong that I'm, I shouldn't be confident in this game. So yeah, I like that. It's a very, like you said, it's just a part of you. So it's really hard to like kind of dissect where it comes from. But yeah, I really think it's a good lesson to be able to learn just to uh, build confidence in advance. And obviously when you move up stakes, you don't have a graph to show for it. You don't have any results at that level, but you know what work you put into your game. And until the level proves that it's too hard for you or players start outplaying you a lot, why not start confident? And I, I think it's a very common trait among successful players. They almost start confident first and they get, that gets reinforced by results later. Whereas other players who struggle to move up stakes often need more reassurance in the short term. They often can't move up stakes because they lack that confidence and yeah, it becomes like an obstacle. So yeah, really, really good. And I think that's one of the things I'm picking away from you already that's allowed you to move up stakes quickly, having confidence initially. So yeah, really good. Rennie, have you got Honestly, any questions on confidence? Okay. Yeah, go look. I just want to say one more thing on that because um, when you were speaking, I, I thought of something else. So I think the reason why I'm confident when I move up is that if you start playing a new stake, you've got no data for it. The only data that you have is your past success. So I feel like if you don't have that confidence, you're almost doing yourself an injustice there. So I think that's mm. probably the reason why is that you've got there, as long as you don't, maybe if you just deposit money to play that stake or something, it's different. But if you move up to that stake based mm. on your past results, then I don't see why you wouldn't feel confident, to be honest. So I think that's probably where mine comes from. It's just objectively thinking, right, I've played this lower stake and I've done well enough to build the bankroll to move up. Therefore, I'm going to feel confident in my new stake. The only thing I did make, I always made this mistake, even though I didn't presume they're going to be better than me, I always presumed these regs at the highest stake to be really aggressive. That was the one thing I, I always made the mistake of was, yeah. oh, this is my first hand, at, no, it's my first grind at 100 zoom. These guys are going to be three betting me and four betting me and five betting me and check raising flopping. That's, that's definitely delusion. So if you're a guy moving up to a new stake and you think these guys are really aggressive, they might be ever so slightly more aggressive, but not to the extent where you're now four betting a new hand in your range because somebody's three bet you because they don't know who you are and they're just still three betting their static ranges and then you're exploiting yourself. So that's the only thing I did make the mistake of doing. Yeah, we had a dude on our podcast two, two episodes ago and he had a similar kind of experience where he said his most, most um, best advice for anyone moving up stakes would be just play solid. Play a normal game. Don't go in there thinking everyone's going to be firing bullets and check raising you and playing all aggressive. Just play solid. And yeah, I think it's similar for you where you're making an assumption without kind of a data point that people are going to be more aggressive. And as a result, you probably deviate your game a lot, go for fancy players. And before you know it, you're playing a game that you're not really comfortable with when, yeah, there's no really no need for it. But yeah, I think it's really interesting. I do feel like it isn't the most common mindset to have confidence in advance. I work with a player at the moment who had a great, his best month he's ever had in his life. And he was moving up stakes. And within a few weeks, his confidence was really, really low. He wasn't even losing. He was just kind of breaking even at the new stakes. But the story he was telling himself was, these games are hard. I haven't got a track record at these. Everyone's got a lot better already. It's like, you haven't even got a sample to prove that. So it's, it's, I think it's really good to have the confidence in advance and go, actually, I'm going to look at the only data point I have, which is these results, which is the lower stake. And until I build a sample of this new stake, I'm not going to judge. And I'm going to assume... 
I'm a good player. So yeah, I think it's a, a very strong mindset. I think it's uh, definitely not as common as, yeah, as, as the opposite approach. So yeah, good stuff. All right, Rene, have you got any follow-up questions on confidence or anything we've talked about so far? There's this great book called The Confidence Gap. I don't know if you know it, Adam. I don't. They talk about that the act of confidence comes first and the feeling comes after. And that's kind of what Luke's story makes me think of. He takes the jump, right, which requires confidence. And then from there, he starts to feel confident because he beats the game. Whereas a lot of players, they cap themselves, partly also because of fear, right? I loved the way you explained they tell a certain story in their head before they moved up. So they haven't played, let's say you play 15L Zoom. They haven't played 100L Zoom yet. But before they play, they've already said so much stories. They're better there and all kinds of reasons why they're not going to beat it that they didn't even jump in there in the first place. Whereas Luke didn't tell him the story. He's like, okay, I'm going to jump in, right? And get data and then make and then adjust from there, right? And then there was this one time where he felt like he had to move back. But at least he tried. And that takes confidence, right? And a lot of people are just afraid to take that step. So... Yeah, I mean, Luke, Luke talks about it in a very normal way. Like, hey, yeah, listen, this is, this, is how the world, this is how the world works, right? But yeah, I think a, a, lot, of players, uh, a lot of players struggle with that. Uh, when you, you mentioned that you took the shot at 15 now and then you moved back, what was something in your game that you felt like you had to change? Or what was something that had to click in order for you to move through that only barrier so far that you've described? I don't remember actually. So that was um, twenty like December twenty. I remember I moved up November or December of twenty sixteen. I played fifty thousand hands, then moved back down at the start of twenty seventeen. I don't remember what made me not feel confident. Maybe I wasn't playing tough enough. Um, I'm not sure. There was something, and like, like I said, it only happened once. So something put me off where I felt like I was I was not. It might have just been, like I said, the metric of I think I'm getting outclassed more than I'm outclassing them, but I'm not sure where. Um, I did end up, like I said, playing 25 and L, having good results and then moving back up, and I never looked back after that. But yeah, I'm not sure exactly what I was pinpointing in my mind to say these guys are better than me. Maybe a few things. It could also obviously just be, uh, you know, over the short sample, you were put in very unfrequent spots where you kind of, you didn't see the showdown, but you felt like, ah, they they probably owned me or whatever. You understand that that you didn't get the confirmation, uh, you know, you, you're still human, right? So, yeah, mm. that, that can happen. You also actually mentioned that I actually thought you came from Huds Up and then moved to 6Max, but you actually played 6Max, then you got a little bit bored of it and then jumped into a little bit of a heads up. What were some of the adjustments you had to make moving from 6Max to heads up? You just got to get your hands dirty. You can't, you can't play. You know in 6Max, in you're going to get the 2017-8 guys, you know, VPFR 3-bet, and then you get the 25-29 guys, and you get the 30-20-10 guys. You've got a different samples of players. In heads up, everyone plays static. Mostly everyone plays static ranges pre-flop. Uh, which is wide, and you got a you got a three bet more than twenty percent. You got a V pip around eighty percent, so you just got to get your hands dirty. Um, definitely, it, uh, it allows you, sorry, to be really aware of blockers and suit properties because you're playing so many offsuit hands. Whereas if you're playing in um, a tight six max environment like under the gun versus big blind, 
you're not having so many offsuit hands. So the suits aren't that important. It's just like, oh, we've got two clubs versus two diamonds. Whereas an offsuit land in heads up, it's um, very, very precise. So I think it really allows you to um, get better at the game of poker. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend someone to get into heads up, but I would say that if you're invested into your future, so let's say you, you want to um, play poker for a long time, I do think heads up's a good, inv a good investment. Not to make short-term money, but to have a good understanding of the game. I think heads up players are better, in my opinion, heads up players are better players than ring game players. In my opinion. All right. No, that that I, I do see where you come from. You mean mainly then theoretical as well? Uh, ma mainly theoretical? Because I can imagine in ring games, you might be better at understanding sort of the dynamic multi-way pots with fish. How does the fish, mm. where is he at the table? How can that impact my strategy? How does that improve my win rate? It's because also what you said, right? If you're playing heads up, you have to make money from the guy you're playing against. You cannot be like, ah, I'll, I'll not play so much against it. For example, in six max, let's say, for example, we have a table. There's uh, one recreational, three bad wrecks, Clenty and me. Then I'm going to be like, okay, why would I look up small edges against Clenty when there's three bad wrecks and a fish? There's no point. There's no point in me. But if I'm saying that heads up, can playing heads up against Clenty, I'm not going to worry about the small edges. Obviously, I will get overrun. Mm. Yeah. Well, firstly, thanks for not including me as, the, as one of the bad wrecks. I appreciate that. Um, and I actually, I agree. You're right. There's definitely different dynamics in heads up. You're not thinking about the multiway spot. So maybe I, I guess it's subjective. Definitely the theory side of it with the blockers and unblockers. But like you say, that's not the whole picture of poker. So yeah, probably actually I take back what I said, because there's more to poker than just blockers and unblockers, obviously. So I would say that, let's say this, if you're playing in a reg only environment in six handed, um, I would say if you have heads up experience, it will really help you in that environment. But then if you're playing with two recreations on the table and then a heads up player joins, the heads up player is probably not going to be experienced in what his deviations are going to be. So then what do you think are some common mistakes that you see heads up players make when they do join a ring game? Uh, they are stronger, maybe from a theoretical side, but obviously, you know, you suddenly play, I don't know, small blind versus big blind out of position, right? That doesn't really doesn't really happen. Mm. We all play too wide. It's like a a real consistent theme is like over over VPIP everywhere. Um, well, over VPIP everywhere pre-flop. So they open too wide and they defend three bets too wide. Without, yeah, I'm not going to name any names. But there's a few guys who play heads up in six max who are primary heads up players. And whenever they play six max, they always just play too loose. They're kind of like, they're, they're the guy who would open queen 10 off so on the button but then they would defend the three bet some of the time because in heads up land it's like snap continue and then in six max is a bit tighter but it's actually a lot tighter and then you obviously just fold you even fold queen jack and yeah that's the kind of just common mistake that i would see but there's not many heads up players so you don't really get many of them joining six max you know typically the guys who play heads up just play heads up and you don't see them in, in the ring game streets I guess then the opposite is more common that you're playing heads up and that you see six max guys jump into a heads up pool. Uh, yeah, sometimes you get a pool where, I mean, on PokerStars, all of it's just heads up zoom. And sometimes you'll get a pool running and then it gets even bigger. You've got like, let's say three or four recreationals and you've got a pool of 20. And then you get a bunch of the six max guys joining uh, because obviously they're making money with the amount of recreationals in there. And um, yeah, that's more common than the, I can only think of like, two or three 
heads up guys who ever actually play six max, but there's a bunch of six max guys who play heads up occasionally. And then uh, the six max guy joins into the heads up. Most com most common problem or leak that they have is not getting their hands dirty enough, I guess. Yeah, that, but only slightly. I feel like the guys who, um, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think if a, if a six max player joins heads up, he always is going to be aware of the ranges. I don't think anyone just jumps into heads up without studying ranges. So I think they do pretty good at getting dirty with their hands, um, but they don't understand the nuances. So what they might have done is they might have studied the ranges. So they might be three bending, you know, over 20%, which is fine. But then they don't understand the nuances, what happens post-flop. Where they might there might be like a certain board that they play a lot differently in heads up, or they're supposed to, but then they don't. So that would be a mistake. Is that they're just understudied? Yeah, the the range interactions obviously uh, are completely completely different. I guess this is also very hard for heads up players that you know it's every time you have different ranges, and as what you already said, they might come in with the game. Okay, we have to play a little bit tighter, but no, we have to play a lot tighter, especially in like these nittier positions, EP, MP. Yeah, you, you just cannot play around. Like playing around with too much hands in tight positions just costs you money. It's just a fact. Mm, yeah, exactly. There's no two ways about it. I think I think it was, uh, what's his name? Kevin Rabi Chow. I think I heard him saying in, in a podcast that he was trying to study MTTs, but the way he was studying heads up cash couldn't be transitioned into, the, into studying MTTs because he would go very deep into very small nuances in spots because there's a limited amount of spots. But then, I mean, if you already think about six max cash, you have different positions that you then have to study. So you cannot go as in depth and think about tournaments. You then have even more positions, more sex sizes. How do you study heads up differently than six max? A heads up is studied the same way, in my opinion. Um, it's just, you just become way more accurate because there is only three situations, maybe a, a few more if you're playing against a guy who limps slash being deeper pre-flop but even then it, it's all heads up zoom so you can just rat hole if you want to you just sit out at 150 blinds and it's fine so i would say my my um study process is the same i'm just like running my sims creating aggregation reports playing against the uh, trainers you know the gta trainers that you can do with your own sims that's my kind of study process um so it's the same and then with tournaments yeah i, th I don't play tournaments so i think and i i have been thinking about um adding them into my grind I think then it's just completely different. Your 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 studying process has to be less finite and more just about understanding lots of different spots. You know, when you're starting starting to include ICM and well, just only ICM and then different stack sizes, playing multi-way, it has to just be less finite, like less less um, nuances. Oh, there's like a heuristic here on this kind of board. It's like, well, actually, now you're playing against different stack sizes, different amounts of players in the hands. It's just less heuristics, more just general solid gameplay i don't think you can really be accurate with mtts i don't i just there's just so many spots to be playing i don't think you can really be good at any of them just got to be kind of okay in my mind maybe i'm wrong i think this is also very important mentally going in that you're not going in to try to find the same accuracy as that you had when playing heads up or even even six max cash and kind of more deal with the uncer more uncertainty and accept that you won't be as precise and that you are going to make more mistakes? Yeah. Um, it's similar to actually going back to an earlier point where you said, where did my confidence come from? And I, I'm usually confident until I get proven otherwise. 
actually now with heads up i've kind of given up playing heads up against the regs who only play heads up because i'm just fighting a a battle that i can't win you know i'm playing something like 70 30 in favor of six max so if only 30 percent of my time is going into heads up how can i play against a guy who's doing 100 percent of his time into heads up so i've given up that battle a while ago um i can't compete against those guys who only play heads up and um yeah and then in tournaments if, you, if you're going to be playing all these different spots i think you just got to go in into the session with the mindset of i'm not going to play perfect i'm not going to be playing every spot to the you know, in, in, when you're playing high stakes cash, you should really not be making EV errors and just mixing errors because EV errors are pretty costly and you should be better than that most of the time. Whereas in tournaments, I think you're just making EV errors everywhere. Uh, and that's just part of the game because there's just so many different spots. You know, we as humans can't really get to the point of zero EV and only then making frequency mistakes in tournaments, at least consistently, because you're just playing so many different stack sizes and then you've got the ICM coming into it as well. I just can't see it. I can't see a human being good enough to do that. Yeah, it's it's insanely com insanely complex. And even in cash, actually, I always have the motto of poker is a game of mistakes. And in order to win, you have to make less mistakes than your opponent. You don't have to play perfect, right? Uh, and that's also like mm. you can add certain game selection here. And yeah, okay, you make a lot of mistakes, then play against guys who even make more mistakes than you. You know, shout out to the to the Zinc Poker on Facebook. Right, a little bang bang here. Uh, I'm sure you've uh, you, you've crushed a couple of guys there. Uh, you mentioned you're just not even gonna try, right, to beat these heads up guys because obviously they only dedicated their time to heads up. What is it then about the gap difference that that extra time that they put into heads up? Why do you then fall behind? What do they do with that extra time that gives them an edge over you? Well, like you just said, poker is a game of mistakes and who makes the less mistakes. And I just wasn't seeing mistakes in their game. So I didn't give up before trying. I definitely did try. And there's, I don't know if you know, but in the heads up world, there's basically just a crew of guys um, from Scandinavia. Um, there's like six or seven of them, maybe. And they're all just really good. And I played against a few of them and just wasn't seeing mistakes. So then I stopped because I wasn't, I, I was making some mistakes. You know, I'm pretty good at heads up. I don't make that many mistakes, but they, in my mind, they were playing a better game than I was. They were making less mistakes. The spots that I was playing well, they were playing well. Spots that I was making some mistakes, they weren't making mistakes. So that's kind of what made, that that just packed it in for me. I was like, oh, I'm not playing against a guy who isn't making the mistakes. I'm making more than him. What's the point? And then also, I'm not even fully invested into heads up anyway. So let's say I did want to, um, start battling with him, uh, battling and making less mistakes. I'm still playing mostly six max anyway. So what's the point? You know, I'm not going to become a heads up only player because the heads up game is just dying slowly but surely. So it makes more sense for me just to focus on six max. Yeah, the remember the old saying: if you cannot spot the fish, then you're the fish. So yeah, if your heads up, are you are you don't see any mistakes of your opponent, then it's very likely. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. that you are the one who is behind. So good self-reflection there. Also, I spot no no ego whatsoever. It's just like, yeah, okay, well, they're better than me. They invest more time in me. That, that's something that they want to do. Okay, I'll move on and focus on six max games. So again, I think it's a, a, a very good, we can call it, mindset that you have here. Uh, you also mentioned, like many, you know, solvers are a big part of your studying process. I think when you started playing poker, 
you started out straight away with the solver because it was out there. Like, for example, I've been playing poker for over 10 years. In the beginning of my career, there was no solver. So we had sort of the transition area. But when you started out, it was solver straight from the start? Not quite, no. Um, I got a solver in 2017, sometime in that year, I think. And Well, definitely 2017, might have been the end of 2016. And right. before then, I was just kind of doing my own thing, studying hand histories the old-fashioned way in Equilab and things like that. Um, I've, after I got the solver, I've, I think I've said this before on um, the Run It Once Elite Call, um, but I only have had success in poker, in my mind, down to... Well, when I say success, I mean like high-stakes success, uh, down to solvers. Because I don't believe that I'm a good poker player in terms of, for example, you've been playing poker for 10 years and you had success way before solvers. I remember seeing your screen name before solvers were a thing. Um, I wouldn't have been a player like yourself who made it before solvers because I don't think I had the ability to do that. I am really good at being a huge geek and just kind of like nerding out in a solver and then having success from that. So... I did have a brief period of playing without solvers, but then solvers really kicked it off for me. That's what made me, a, I went from 25 slash 50 up to 1K in a couple of years because I just understood the solver more than my own pre-solver game. You know, my pre-solver game was basically, if they check, I bet, kind of strat. It was just super, super high red line. That was my innate style. It wasn't very good. <laughs> it was pretty, it was, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't elegant at all. Yeah, I think, uh, I think you needed yeah, a different set of skills, I guess. Before, like I said, I think before we recorded, I said that creativity is, was always been one of my strengths. So I could creatively think about strategies. I would think about ways to make EV. And then later, it turned out when the solver came out that a lot of my strategies were GTO, right? I understood how they made EV. The solver does the same. Obviously, there were many where that was not the case. Okay. Uh, in your opinion, like you said, uh, consolvers contributed a lot to your success. I have to say my breakthrough towards higher stakes was also when I started to use more solvers. But this was also a combination in I was playing against tougher opponents who would also use a lot of solvers. And I was always the type who learned a lot from playing against uh, my opponent. So I was, even though I wasn't that much into solvers, I used solvers more, I would say, when I started the CFP and started coaching people because I could present the evidence that what I was saying was right. So I often used the solver to sort of make my point. You know, it's like, yeah, you see, the solver also agrees with me, so he has the authority. People listen to what the solver says, right? Um, in your opinion, what are some common mistakes that people make? And how could they better use a solver in order to, just like you, move up to 1K within a year? Uh, by far, the biggest mistake that people use in solvers, and this is this is a real, I mean, there's going to be people listening to this who are doing this, and I hope they um, take this advice, is run your sims to a static nature, i.e. run your sims to the same SPR and the same ranges. Don't change your range or don't change the SPR to the hand because then you kind of come into MTT land where it's just infinitely complex. So have a set of pre-solves that are static. And if you happen to three bit a bit too big or a bit too small, then okay, just part of life. Nothing is going to be perfect. 
So learn from one set of sims, big blind first. Let's say big blind first button in a three bit pot. Have one set of sims. Don't have, I mean, an infinite set of sims where basically your research is running the sim at the time and you're just doing the exact SPR, the exact range that you think's happening. Are you three betting too tight because he's under opening? Or is he overthrowed into three bets and then you're over wide and then your range is not doing very well postal because he's got a tight range and you've got a wide range and then the, all the heuristics are different? Don't do that. Have one sim and then learn the, learn the heuristic to that sim. That's that's um, by far and away the biggest takeaway I think someone can, can learn from using solvers. Yeah, because that approach is more I'm trying to figure out what I have to do in this exact hand that I was dealt, where yours using the solver more as, okay, the solver plays GTO, I'm trying to understand GTO, the solver shows a game that is based on GTO, so I can learn from that. You're using, you're using more static ranges, the same ranges, the same spots. You look for heuristics like, okay, how does GTO play in in the solver? Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you want to learn how to play the spot in of itself, then you either don't use a solver and go into other different different softwares where you can node lock um, more effectively, or use the static sim and then be creative post that. So I don't I don't really see a world where you should just use a sim that's live to the spot. You should either just use like Flopzilla or Equilab and just quite literally go into an Excel sheet and count combos, right, if you're on the river or something, or use the static sim and then be creative after that. I think either method is going to be better than creating a one-off sim that you just basically delete afterward. And if you rinse repeat that process, you will still improve because ultimately you're still working. But you're not going to improve as fast as somebody else who... First, he doesn't have to rerun this sim because he's got the one sim there and it's waiting for him in the library. Um, but also, he will learn heuristics more because these heuristics are consistent over the boards. They're not just, you know, one time you're playing with a 5 SPR, other time you're playing with a 3 SPR, and everything just changes at that point. If you start, when you start getting good at poker, you realize that you change one thing in a sim, and it, it might not completely backflip itself, but it will, it will definitely change to an extent that your strategy should, should shift. So I don't, I don't play to that where I'm, I'm creating a different sim each time. Yeah, unless obviously understanding the impact SPR has on your strategy is your goal of your research, right? Then by all means, run the same spot, 50 BB, 150 BB, 100 BB, and see what changes, right? If you, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to study which variables shift the strategies. What was the determining factor, right? Some, some, it's exactly what you just said. Sometimes you change something and it doesn't really change much. But when you change one thing, you change one card, or you change the SPC, SPR to a certain point where suddenly the strategy flips. And in that, in my opinion, is a major concept that you should learn and build your game around. And especially, like we talked about, right, in MTTs, this kind of way of studying is going to be way more crucial as you're going to get into so much spots where you don't exactly know what to do, but you're just going to use the heuristics you have about how to play reasonably GTO to figure the spot out as you go, right? Yeah. Yeah. If your research is more nuanced, like you said, like SPI research, um, then yeah, definitely. Then that, then you want to play around in, in different ways. But if your goal for the time being or goal at that point is just to learn how to play this board um, or big blind versus button, then you should have these, uh, these pre-salts. I've also done the um, research that you're talking about of the SPR and things like that. It's very interesting, especially if you start, if you start using like toy game models and you start playing with them, um, like, for example, if you're playing a three bit pot, but then you're like 500 big blinds effective. It's really interesting to see what the solver does. It's um, not what I was thinking anyway, where 
I was thinking, oh, you can just like rush money in because you've got really good hands. It's like, no, everything is super, super passive. It's like massive game of uh, who can check the most almost. That's what it seems like when you're playing super, super deep. Yeah, I mean, you can see that, right? Take a tournament spot where you're playing 40 BB. Um, that spot, you know, you have a lot of already open jams. In 100 BB, you know, you have that exactly on a on a jack 10 x to uh, to to space or something but when you go deeper than it you don't open jam anymore it's not a thing right or in 100 bb we yeah. still want to bet big on certain flops so we might get it in in the turn but yeah then when you're 500 big blinds deep and you bet very big then the guy costs the shitty turn costs and you still have 400 bb left good luck so yeah it's definitely something yeah. to take in consideration yeah. and indeed usually uh, the deeper you come and especially when you're out of position uh, yeah you cannot really deny your opponent from seeing the river, right? Uh, or at least without destroying your equity when called. Uh, we had a podcast with uh, Ben and Ben Beat uh, earlier, and you mentioned you guys uh, studied together as well. And Ben has been playing just like me poker already for a very long time. Um, the pre the pre solver age, so to say, we we were winning players at the pre solver age. He also mentioned that if you come from the pre solver age. That does have some benefits, mainly in playing versus recreational players. He thought that the older school players are better in that. What do you think are some benefits that you, for example, see that Ben has because he he was already winning player pre-solver age? And how do you see yourself playing against recreationals? Yeah, I completely agree. Guys who are from pre-solvers just have a better idea of how to um think outside of a solver so without relying on that they just have a better like better intuition better creativity i mean often ben ben and me send each other hands um not daily but almost and if i ever send him a hand nine times out of ten is against a recreational should i have done this how do you play the streets that kind of stuff because ben's the man to ask about how to play against recreationals he's just he's an expert he's very very good um so yeah i would say they are better than that Oh, better at that. Um, and what was the second part of your question? Sorry, I completely mind blanking. The second part of the question, what do you think are some other skills that, for example, a player like Ben picked up pre-solver H that contributes, still contributes to his success in modern name poker that you can learn from, for example? Um... I think it depends on the games that you're playing in as well. Because if you're playing, for example, I try to play the PokerStars games mainly, and then a bit of ACR and Party, um, where the games are pretty tough. And I would say then the pre-solver era doesn't really give you many advantages. Like if you're playing, if you're playing a four-handed 2K reg battle on Stars, I don't think you're going to get much advantage from being a pre-solver guy. But then if you're playing on ACR and there's two recreations on the table, uh, then he's just very good at... I think he just opens his game up to being... He's very... Um, like, I think I'm a reactionary player where I'll wait for something to happen and I'll try and react to it, where he's just thinking ahead and he's thinking, right, this guy... You've got the guy in the blinds and then the guy on the button, and he's going to he's gonna either open too wide or open wide or um, defend wide or just do... So. He's basically kind of curating the game plan on the fly, whereas I'm not doing that and then i'm paying the consequence of reacting to it whereas he's kind of going at them 
if that makes sense. So I think he's just very aware of the differences in game flow when the game is going from a reg battle to anything but that. He's very good at playing in the Wild West, as we say. No, yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can very strongly relate to that. I would say that that is a skill of mine as well. Because imagine pre-solver H, you didn't have, like, I mean, if you face a bet, you didn't really know what to do. There was no set game plan. You didn't know what was correct. So you were always trying to figure out, okay, what's going to happen? How does this guy play? How can I exploit that? Nowadays, we are way more focused on, okay, what is our range? How does our range want to play? Like a bit more, you could say, sort of defensive poker. I'm trying to play a solid strategy. You make deviations, therefore I win. Whereas in the past was you really had to hunt people down for money. So you were constantly looking at how can I make money at this table? How can I exploit this opponent? You were constantly trying to invent lines. So you were constantly trying to figure out what do you have and how can I make the correct decision versus that? which is a train of thought that I think a lot of modern-day players, they kind of miss. Yeah. I mean, I get this a lot in Heads Up, where I'm playing as a recreational. And, I mean, there are times... So I, I, I'm doing this approach currently versus recreationals where I'm uh, opening 4x, because uh, I'm just trying to put more money into the pot. But honestly, sometimes I just lose myself. Because I don't... like I. I, I'm very good at understanding a game plan that's structured, so with the solver. And then when it comes to making this thing on my own, um, I'm not very good at it. And that's where I think if, if Ben was here and he was creating a game plan, he could just in 10 minutes create a game plan. You know, basic one. This is what I'm doing on flops, this is what I'm doing on turns, this is what I'm doing on rivers. And I feel like it would take me either days or I'd just be unable to do it because I just don't have that skill set. You know, I would, I would at that point just need to um, almost hire him as a recreational or like a, a coach to help me playing against recreations because i just don't really have that mindset like i said i don't think i'm a good poker player i think i'm good at solvers and that's indirectly helped me with poker but when it comes down to the basics of uh you know how to play poker i don't think i'm actually very good at that i think i'm just very fortunate that we have solvers to to help us yeah you're not great at inventing strategies but then when benabit makes the strategy he invents the strategy then he shows you which is sort of what the solver does but in this case ben does that against recreationals you are easily, when you have the final results, mm. you can interpret that and you see like, oh, that's how it works. Now I understand it. But you cannot create it out of the blues. Like, where do I where do I start? I've always made strategies based on, I know the end results and trying to understand it. Yeah, exactly. I don't have the brain, like my brain doesn't work that way. Uh, it just doesn't. I, I have, my mind will blank. I just, instead of it taking some time, I just am unable to kind of get my head around it. My brain is more of a, like, I believe that there are different models that your brain can work under. So you've kind of got like a, um, a scientist, an artist, an engineer, um, a logician, if that's a word, or like a, a logicist, I'm not sure. Um, different, different frameworks that your mind can work under. And mine, or maybe like creative mind as well, or that might come under artist. And my, work, my, my mind is just very, very, very logical, and I'm good with that. And then when it comes to being creative or even like an engineer side of the brain where you're just you've got like a lot of moving parts and you got to say, okay, here's the moving parts. How'd you put them together? I'm like, I don't know. I'm good at understanding the engine and then seeing how it works. Cause that's the logical side of it, but I can't put things together. I'm just, I'm really, really poor at that. Uh, my literal thinking skills are just terrible. Uh, but Ben is the opposite. Ben is extremely, I mean, impressive. If you're doing hand history reviews, he's just like, he just nails it. 
he understands what's going on and yeah it's to him it's intuitive to me it's anything but so definitely different skill sets yeah i i remember also when i had students or something and we would talk about more exploitation and i would show i don't know certain stats on a certain player and to me it was like listen it's quite obvious right he has that leak is that leak so that means that we're gonna do this that bah, 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 and they're like okay where the fuck do i even start watching what do these numbers mean how how will that impact my strategy but with me if i see three stats that are outside of the average i immediately know like okay yeah we're gonna adjust that way the spell is gonna play out this way he's gonna do that so it leaves him more with this and then bomb strategy it's it's super intuitive because that's what mm -hmm. i've been doing my whole life is this because i know you're very gto oriented or at least in the videos that i've watched of you uh there's basically only gto considerations is this also then because that's your strength do you kind of stay away from the exploitative stuff on purpose to remain within your strengths? Well, I definitely exploit. Um, videos on Reddit once and elsewhere are very um, deliberately GTO because that's what I'm working toward as a theme. Um, there are definitely exploits coming in against regulars. But I would say, one, I do try to limit that. And two, I don't think I'm very good at that. So, um, if I'm let, let's say let's say you, me, and another reg are playing three-handed and we're all good, there will be exploits coming in my game. But I'd imagine you would firstly outperform me at exploits, and also you would just do more of them too. So I th I feel like you would have a higher frequency and and just higher ROI for each one that you do. That makes sense. And and also one more thing Adam. as well to yes. think of like as a, as like an analogy. I'm really good at making a HUD. For example, my, my poker HUD is really, really good in my mind. Um, but then I fail to read it. I fail to read all these stats that I've got on them and then actually create a game plan against that. You know, I took all of the effort of creating all of these custom stats and a really, really powerful kit. But then I'm not somebody who can actually read that and then create a game plan from that. Whereas I think if I was to show you my HUD and then you were to see a few um, stat profiles and villains, you know, immediately, like you said, you would just think of, Okay, well, if this spot comes up, then do this, obviously. And I'm like, oh, really? So that would be the difference is that I can create a really good HUD, but then I can't even use it as effectively as someone like you can, where it's just intuitive to you. Yeah, I think this is also, you know, it's part of the learning process. Uh, if you start using HUDs, in the beginning, you just think like, oh, yeah, cool stat, cool stat, cool stat. But they have all the stats. You're like, okay, now what? And then at some point you realize... For example, in my in my HUD, I only have stats displayed that if too high or too low, make me make an adjustment. If if a stat is just there and I'm not going to make an adjustment right. when it, in my case, turns red or green, which means out of the ordinary in either to the right or to the left, um, I'm going to make an adjustment. And I find especially colors in HUDs very useful because I like to then talk about red players and green players. Green players... Usually stats turn green when they are overfolding or under aggressive and red, they turn red when they're underfolding and over aggressive. So then you get red players, green players. That's kind of the profile. Then you know, okay, if I'm playing versus a villain mm -hmm. who's green, okay, he's usually more passive and overfolding. That means my money is being made by being aggressive. And when he's aggressive, I fold. The other guy is the opposite, right? I'm gonna try to not be as mm -hmm. aggressive because you know, my fault equity is less. And when he's aggressive, I'm going to be extra aggressive or at least less willing to fault and more willing to rebluff, for example. That's just a general yep. 
gameplay. But I think, you know, once you start working more with HUDs and thinking more exploitative, I mean, I've also had points where I just had an infinite number of stats displayed where I was like, yeah, okay, actually it doesn't really contribute because I don't use half of them, right? And this is also, for example, if I learn theory and I learn that, oh, this is actually a spot where, um, for example, take to, to use a practical example, the imposition three better, his CBAT percentage, if he's three betting from MP to button should be different than he's three betting big blind to small blind, okay? So if I then know if someone is tree betting or is betting the same frequencies on all spots, by having that stat, I can then exploit that tendency, right? That's kind of then how it works. So adding that stat actually contributes to my strategy because if it's too high, I can exploit him by, for example, check raising his bets more, right? So that's an example of having a stat that actually, if too high or too low, makes you make an adjustment. This podcast is brought to you by Poker Ambition, where me and Adam have created our coaching program, The Mechanics of Poker. After having reached high stakes poker ourselves, we tested out this philosophy on our CFP students, which saw them rise through the ranks and double their win rate. We then took the best knowledge of that CFP program and turned it into the mechanics of poker so you can have that high quality content without the long-term commitment and often hefty price that comes with a CFP program. Now I will be teaching you the technical side of how poker really works, how to think about the game and how to consistently get better. And Adam focuses on the mindset and performance skills you need to know in order to convert all that technical poker knowledge into more consistent profits at the table. Now this program is high level. It's made for professional poker players who have the ambition to break free from mid stakes and move up to high stakes poker. So if you're ambitious about your poker goals, go over to pokerambition.com for more information. And there you can also find a free one hour demo of everything that is inside the program. If you have any further questions, don't hesitate to reach out. But without further ado, let's get back to more goodness in this episode. All right, Adam, I remember Clenty a little bit earlier talked about different ways of thinking or that we have different ways that we approach. I think he talked about the artist, the engineer, the more logical person and how, you know, the way that they then approach poker, think about poker differs. Have you seen that as well when uh, poker players come to you for coaching? how their brain works differently and have you had to change your approach based on what kind of person they are? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in simple terms, we could go, you've got the creative kind of intuitive instinctive people and then you've got the more logistic people who like to have like rules and follow a set method. And yeah, myself, I'm more the logistic person. So it's easier for me to communicate in logic than it is the kind of intuitive creative sides. But yeah, I think it's really important to know where you fit, like what's your strengths? Because often, yes, you work on your weaknesses and improve them. But for Clancy, for example, he's never going to have anywhere near as much success trying to use his intuition, get creative, and things that aren't in his natural strengths. Whereas if he uses solvers, he's going to do great with those. So it's knowing like what your natural tendencies are and playing within your strengths for the most part and building your strategy around there. I think one of the examples you used as well, Clancy, was an engineer. And that got me thinking of one of our recent podcast guests was Zinhao, and he was a classic engineer. He would he loved to build. Everything was about building strategies, building. Even his business was around 
uh, almost like putting bricks together and trying to get to this really, uh, this, the building process was really fun for him. So again, it's knowing that about yourself and yeah, playing towards those strengths and the brain's got different modes. We can definitely go into a creative mode, even if we're a logistical person. But if you're strongly towards one side of the equation, you're going to play better in that field. So you're going to basically base your strategies, your life around uh, your strengths rather than trying to count your weaknesses. So yeah, I think it's really good to have the self-awareness to know that. And yeah, I think the logistical people normally find out earlier because I think it's logistical people normally clash. I know myself, I would clash with people who were very emotional or they struggled to uh, map out what they were thinking in a logistic clear way. Cause I'd be like, okay, if you can't tell me concisely, I don't, I can't understand the methodology, but over time, yeah, definitely as a coach, I've learned to uh, communicate better with different styles, different personality types, especially those who uh, can't speak in logic and they're more emotional based or they're more intuitive based and they're trying to express things through their feeling and the generally they will at the pocket tables play more creative more intuitive instinctive and yeah i think it's really yeah there's definitely a lot of variety on that scale what's super interesting is even in 2022 there's not really a, a better or worse strategy you can be very very solver heavy and do incredibly well you can be very intuitive creative and do very very well i know some people have debates over which one wins over GT on exploitation, but you can have like very, like not polar opposite, but very different approaches to the game and still have very successful careers at the high stakes. Obviously, if you get the very, very high stakes, you could argue that GTO and logic might over, overtake exploit at some point. But yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I think it's good if you're watching this, reflect are you a logistical person? Are you a builder, an entrepreneur, an engineer type, or are you an instinctive, intuitive guy like Rene? So yeah, I think now would be a good time to do a bit of reflecting and looking back on your book career. And the first question I have for you is, what is the number one lesson you think you've learned through poker? So something you didn't know prior to poker, but number one lesson that poker has taught you. Um, maybe sounds a bit uh, boring, really, but I would say to think in terms of EV is really, really powerful. And to accept that your ev is positive hopefully and to have a negative outcome but still be okay with that i think before poker if i was to get unlucky with something i'd be like oh i'm also not only would i be annoyed but i also might be results orientated and think oh well that was a bad decision i should have done that whereas now poker allows me to think no this was the right decision um i can't think of like too many real world examples that happens but every now and again i can i, I catch myself coming into like semi poker mode where I'm just thinking I'm, I'm trying to let's say calculate the situation and then I can make a determined guess as to where I think I should go and then it's more logical and if it's as, as long as I'm happy with my decision then I'm happy with the outcome regardless of what happens and yeah I think even even just like simple things um, in life you can you can translate to some sort of EV and then yeah I think that's definitely helped me I'm not saying I think about EV in every single, you know, most of my real life decisions are still intuitive, but every now and again, you can, you can you think about the EV of it. Yeah. Did that come natural for you early in your career or did you struggle with results orientated thinking early on? Did you have any, any sort of learning curves where this wasn't a strong skill of yours? Yeah. I don't think, I don't think I was very good at the start. I think poker brought that out for sure. Um, not sure exactly when that helped me or rather when it, when it started to become a real thing, but, at the start, I think I was just like uh, most normal people, which is um, results, you know, bad, bad outcome, bad decision, good outcome, good decision. And then poker trains to not think that black and white. Yeah, I think it is a, a really interesting skill that does actually 
translate into almost everything you do. Because once you really learn to think in EV for like big decisions, you can't really switch that off because it is like a really accurate way of viewing. Like any situation's got a probability of going good, bad, indifferent. And yeah, what actually happens in the short term doesn't really matter. But most decisions in life, we get one good result and one bad result. We'll often judge that result based on the outcome rather than the actual EV. Yeah, I think once you train yourself, I think, like you said, poker almost forces you to learn the skill. If not, you're going to have a lot of uh, kind of tilt issues around your results. It trains you to think, actually, what's the EV? Did I make the right decision there? Could I improve my EV, that decision, irrelevant of the actual outcome and detach myself from it? So yeah, really, really good one. So uh, as you've moved up stakes, has there been any uh, big jumps that you've made in terms of like your approach to uh, your life overall? So that I mean, like say you're moving from one case to two case. Has, have you ever had to do a full upgrade of plenty off the tables to almost like level up your habits, your routines, the way you're approaching the game? Has there been any point where you went, you know what, in order to play this level, I'm going to have to step things up. Has that had to happen at any stage for you? No, I think pretty linear. Um, I definitely don't splurge in real life with money at all. I'm pretty conservative with that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I think everything's been pretty consistent. I I mean, there, there's definitely been, there's levels to it because when I started playing poker, I was living in my bedroom with my nan. Um, you know, she, we had a small two bed place and I was just living in a bedroom and that was easy, you know, and now I've got my own place. So I would say there's levels to it where if I was still playing 10 and now, I probably wouldn't be able to be living by myself. Um, so there's levels, but, I, I, but I'm not someone, let's say I won the Sunday million. Um, I would not go and then splurge on a watch or something, which is like pretty common. Uh, people win a big tournament, they go and buy like a five grand watch. I wouldn't, I don't think I will ever, ever, I don't care how wealthy I can get. I would never do that. Um, so yeah. I, I, and in terms of like study routines or like poker habits, um, I actually think I'm studying less than I used to. I used to study a lot and now I'm more into uh, playing a bit more. So I would say actually I've studied less. I think I used to be, I actually think I did it well, even though it was fortunate it worked out that way. I think you should invest more time into studying when you're coming up the stakes. And then when you get to a level where you can just start to make a good amount of money, then you still want to study. You want to you still want to keep up with the curve and try and stay ahead of it. But then you want to put less focus on studying and more focus on playing and applying and then also learning. So Rene says he learns from playing against villains and learning what they're doing. I learn from playing, but not so much about what they're doing, about what I'm doing. So you might study a situation, but then when you're playing, you just find a same situation. So it might be button versus big blind, but there might be a specific turn or a specific river that it makes you think. So I think uh, now I, I put more eggs into playing and then learning from playing. So like I might get a, a, a different situation that I've never thought about before. Or um, I haven't thought, I've thought about it before, but now I understand it all of a sudden. Sometimes you just kind of get those eureka moments where you just, now all of a sudden out of nowhere, you just understand the spot and it just takes you the 20th time to finally click. So um, a long story short, your answer, I would say no. I, I don't think I've really upgraded um, in one swift action. I think it's just more been a slow process. Yeah. So you said at the moment you're play, studying less and playing more. And your ability to learn through playing might have improved. I was just thinking as you were talking, I wonder if that's a common kind of theme for players where as their skill level progresses, they can actually learn more themselves through playing because they've got a lot of heuristics, they've got a lot of ways of problem solving. Where early in your career, you kind of hit a roadblock and you're like, 
I just don't know. I just do not know how to solve this problem. So you almost can't learn through playing as much because you hit too many obstacles where you just don't have the framework to think. So that's an interesting thing for myself to reflect on. So for yourself with studying and playing, what's a rough ratio of say studying to playing that you're currently on? So you're most playing heavy at the moment. What does that look like on a weekly basis? Well, I say playing heavy. I still probably play less than most professionals, to be honest. Uh, I play four days a week, four hours a day. So 16 hours a week. And then I study five days a week. I say study, but I also coach. So coaching is definitely a form of study. I don't classify it as that, but I have to appreciate that part of it is. Um, and I study anywhere from 50 to 100 minutes. So I have this like simple mantra that I say to myself, which is that I will study twice a day, five days a week for anywhere between 25 to 50 minutes. So I basically study in 25 minute segments and I will either do one or two of those per session, two of them a day. So either I can go from two to 25, or two lots of 50 or 125 and 150. I do that five days a week and then I'll play my four days. So it ends up being, I don't know what the math would be, but I probably play 70, 30 uh, play study. So not crazy. Uh, not, you know, there's definitely, I'm, I'm playing good stakes and, and there's not 10 hours in, a, in, in playing land and then four hours in study land. It's nothing like that. You know, I used to study more than I do now. When did you start that mantra of the 25 minutes to 50 minutes? What, what part of your career did you inject that? I'm not sure. Um, definitely recent. It's definitely in the last year, I would say. I've been I'm trying to balance my life more where I'm, I'm not just playing and studying, but also doing other things, getting fit and healthy. And um, yeah, I just realized there wasn't enough time in the day. I was just, my days were just so busy with, well, playing, studying, coaching, run it once. Um, I have a trainer that I'm working with as well. So there's a lot of things that go on in, in the day that I just can't get around to studying for hours and hours. So I picked out, uh, initially it was 20 minutes where I would do either a 20 minute session or 40 minute session with a break in the middle. And then I made it 25 just because I felt like it's a bit better. And yeah, that's just what I do now. So I don't, I also feel like if you study for hours and hours on end, unless you're studying with someone, your brain just switches off. So I studied with Ben, actually, I didn't even include that, but I, I studied with Ben on Wednesday for two hours or two and a half hours. And that's great. I really enjoy it because I'm, I've got company there, but if I'm studying by myself, then it's just, uh, it's just 25 minutes and I'll take a break and then I'll decide if I want to come back for another 25. And it's not more than that. It's not, I, I very rarely would study for an hour by myself, unless there is particular interest if I'm having a good time. But usually, um, honestly, I'm usually having to force myself. I don't particularly enjoy studying anymore unless I'm having a, a, a buddy to do it with. Do you think, Kevin, those shorter blocks, like they say the 25 minutes as the kind of minimum, do you feel like that helps you to overcome resistance of starting a study mm -hmm. session? Because I know for a lot of players, they they want to be studying more, but just things get in the way. They're busy, they, they want to grind instead, and almost like studying gets pushed to one side, and their hours end up getting less and less. And it's quite daunting to go, right, I'm going to do an hour studying or two hours studying on a deep topic where the brain's going to think really clearly. So do you think for yourself, having those kind of, shorter sessions like say 25 minutes is a minimum do you think that allows you to overcome the resistance of actually starting a study session yeah like anything in life even outside of poker you will be consistent at what you enjoy and i don't particularly enjoy study unless i'm with ben so with with ben we are super consistent mm -hmm. and we I, I imagine we both enjoy it as well so we can just do the two and a half hour block we take a short break in the middle and it's really enjoyable so we're really good at that um, by myself, I just can't do that. So I just make it the 25 minutes. And I actually, I also say I don't enjoy something. I do enjoy studying for the 25 minutes and then a break. Mm -hmm. If I force myself to make it an hour in one go, which I used to do, I feel like um, there's going to be a lot of players who resonate with this, where they just, they are quite stubborn with, no, they, they, they hold themselves to a certain standard. So they'll say, no, I'm going to study for two hours because that's the person that I am. And I'm going to do that. 
and then they crumble because they don't do it in the end. If you just kind of like humble yourself a bit and say, no, I'm just going to say for 25 minutes, that's all I've got to do. Uh, then you end up enjoying it more because you've got less pressure and it's, it's not too hard to start that because it's just 25 minutes. It's a lot easier than like from eight to 11. And then you're like, God, I'm like an hour and a half in. I've still got another hour and a half to go. It's a lot harder to do it that way. Yeah. And with your approach, you still have the option to go longer if you want to. So it's almost like a win-win. If you're enjoying yeah. the 25 minutes, you can do 50 an hour, whatever. Yeah. I like that as well. I think often we create rigid rules through good intention. We want to push ourselves. We get, mm-hmm. Like I said, as soon as you start losing the enjoyment, there's not many people who are consistent with things they don't enjoy. And if they are very often they're not going to perform as well over the long term, if they're constantly using like kind of willpower, whipping themselves to actually start again to do something. So yeah, I think it's really a good, good advice to actually lower the, kind of minimum requirements to allow yourself to study more frequently, but enjoy that process. Do you use anything similar with, with poker or is poker just more fun overall for you? The grinding, oh, but, sorry. Um, yeah, playing, I really enjoy actually. So I can, I do my four hours, four days a week. And uh, that's always the highlight. I would say the highlight in my week is either playing or coaching. And I really enjoy both. Um, sometimes getting crushed at poker and I don't enjoy it. Uh, other, but if I'm not getting crushed, then I'm having a great time. And uh, only toward the end of it, like I might be on my last half hour of the grind and I'm a bit tired. Uh, I'm definitely tired and I'm definitely blanking in some spots. Um, but no, playing is is way easier than studying for me. Oh, and also you mentioned earlier about the, um, it's easier to uh, play and learn when you're quite, like, so when you start playing in early in your career, it's hard to learn from playing because you're kind of lost. I think I agree with that, but also it depends on what kind of player you are. So I think if you're, let's say, a more logical-based player, you might struggle to learn from playing when you're a novice. But if you're an instinctive player, you might benefit early from playing uh, in your career because I don't think it really changes. At that point, you're just instinctive throughout. Whereas with me, I definitely didn't learn from playing early in my career. It's only once I started to understand the game. You don't want to get into the mindset of just thinking about like blockers and unblockers and this spot as, as very static. You still want to learn the mechanics of poker as Rene has made a product about, because that's still very important. But uh, even though things do change in the sliding scales, you want to understand the, the underlying themes of the game. Once you do understand them, then you can quite often just learn while playing because you you understand the, the, the foundations of the game. And then you can just jump into, like, I love it where, um for some reason it doesn't run very much but sometimes the anti games will run on poker stars not very often though and i really enjoy those games because everyone is going to be making mistakes also the anti games will depend on how many players is it six-handed where there's like 1.2 big blinds of anti or is it three-handed where there's only 0.6 and that's going to change it right but no one really plays those effects and everyone's deviating and that's really really fun Um, but i think you can only really do that if you're a logical brain after getting good at the game otherwise you just kind of like crumble because those rigid rules you set yourself are falling down fast and then you're breaking down mentally super interesting yeah i I like that i've never never thought of that before but that makes sense a more creative intuitive player maybe like the rene type will be able to learn from playing maybe early in their career because they're constantly using that part of the brain whereas someone who's more logistical who needs more of a, a roadmap or solvers to kind of highlight the way might need a certain bit of uh, experience and knowledge before they can actually start to actually solve problems on the fly or learn as much from playing. So yeah, very, very interesting. I never really thought about it before. So one question I want to ask, I remember early in the conversation, though we know how the story ends, you said when you first started playing poker on Facebook, for example, um, it was a mistake. It was a class as a mistake. So like, let's go back to that kind of moment where you're, you're jumping into poker, completely clueless, just playing and you're not knowing what you're going through. 
What do you wish you had known in that moment that would help fast track you or set you up a little bit better for what's to come? Firstly, poker is really hard. It's not just a card game. Well, it is just a card game, but turns out the card game is really hard. And secondly, um, I would not have... So I think maybe this is just me, but I think most poker players um, get into poker thinking they're smarter than what they are. Mm. And I think there's like a common theme, not only with poker, but just with other things. Like let, let's say, um, for example, you're on a night out and uh, you, there's five of you and you've got, I mean, maybe, yeah, I, I think this is somewhat true. So let's say there's five of you on a night out and you go and play a new game. I feel like there'd be some subconscious bias that thinks the guy earning the most money a year in something completely separate to what you're doing will be the best player at this new game. At least maybe not so um, like definite, but subconsciously, we, I think we think that. Same if we have like, let's say there's a really, really um, good athlete in a certain field. When they start playing a new game, they're going to be good at this, even if the game is completely separate to what they are. And I feel like I thought, okay, I'm good with numbers. I'm going to be good with poker. And turns out I'm good with numbers, but I'm not good at poker. So I think the two things would be poker is really hard and I'm not as smart as what I thought I was. Um, in mm. fact, I think that the strengths in poker that you need to be good at, I am actually not very good at. I would say I even fall below the average. So yeah, that would be two things. Okay, so if you had to give yourself those two bits of advice before you've even started your career, it's going to be a lot harder than you think and you're not as good as you think. Would that have inspired you to keep going or would you just turned away at that, at that obstacle? So the first one about poker being really hard, I would have I would have actually found inspiration in that, I'm sure. But if I had the foresight that I told myself that I wasn't good at it, then I would have just quit. Mm. But if some so but if somebody told me, if Rene told me that he came from the future and he knew that I would suck at the game, I would say, fuck you, I'm gonna still try and do this. But if it was myself coming from the future, then I would say, okay, well, then I should just not do this. So that's kind of like coming down to, I, I'm very stubborn. But then if, if it's from myself, if I've told myself that I'm not good at it, then it comes to that confidence thing, you know, the innate confidence. And that would knock my confidence and I wouldn't want to do it anymore. Also, I, I really enjoy poker as a game. Um, I don't really do poker for the money, if I'm being completely honest with you. So, I mean, partly I do because, you know, I wouldn't play, I wouldn't play play money. But I think that's because nobody who's good at poker plays play money. It's really the competition that I get from it. And if I didn't think I was very good and I didn't, I didn't think I was competitive in the game, I wouldn't get that thrive anymore. So I think, it, I, I, think I would probably, um, I would have still played poker no matter how hard I thought it would be. But the moment I thought I wasn't good at it, then I wouldn't do it. What is it about competition that you like? What does it, it bring out in you that you would do it even if there was no money? Why, why do you think competition is a big part of uh, your drive? I just love beating someone. Um, well, I, that's not true because I don't really care if they're recreational. If, if, if they're a recreational player, then I don't, I don't care. But if they are a professional, then I love beating or outperforming a, a professional. You know, when I'm playing on PokerStars and we're playing three-handed and I'm, I'm open sitting the new table, they always moan at me. Like, Clancy, can you close the new table? And I never do it. Well, sometimes I do, but re very rarely. And it pisses them off. But the whole point is that I want to play against them. So mm. long as I don't think, I'm, even if I think I'm a dog in the game, which is occasionally I do, um, I'll still do it. Because I, I want to be competitive. I want to have a good time. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm having the most fun when I'm playing against other really, really good poker players. I'm not having a good, a good time if I've got, 
five tables on the go and all of them have a recreational one. I'm still playing poker because I'm still making money. I still, need to, I still need to be a professional, right? But I'm having way more fun if I've got less tables, but then really good players in all the tables. Mm. That's just me. Yeah. So other than poker, is there anything else in your life that brings out that same competitive drive? Was there been any, when you're younger, I think video games, you said you played that a lot, quite a lot. Is there anything else where you've been equally competitive? Um, I, so when I was a lot younger, I used to do temping bowling. That was something that I was uh, really good at at a young age. Um, and I just kind of quit that at some point, but that, that was my thing for a long time from the age of like maybe eight till maybe like seven till 12. Um, I was really, really serious. I was going around the country playing tournaments. Um, and then after that, I got into video games, was really, really serious with that. And then I found poker. And then I actually I also found that upon learning poker and putting so many eggs into that basket, I then took a step back from video games because I basically thought I can't learn video games and poker at the same time. Because also, I don't know about you, but poker teaches you how to learn. So I think the next thing I find, which I'm not sure what it will be, but I think after poker, it will probably be something like chess or something like that, where um, it's a very competitive one-to-one -one game. I think uh, I will have a better chance at having success at chess than somebody else, not because of you know, how smart I am or anything, but because I know how to learn through poker. Poker's taught me that skill set. So yeah, right now I would say I'm just competitive with, with uh, poker only. I did put so I did try to learn chess and, and video games, but I just found I wasn't seeing the EV in it because it was taking away from poker. Yeah, you had the self-awareness to realize at some point you can't split yourself between two endeavors, especially if you're trying to get very good at them and you want to compete against very good people. Very often at some point, sometimes when you're young, you can kind of multitask a few different options, but there almost comes a point where you're like, right, if I really want to compete at this at a high level. I need to give it more of my time and attention. So yeah, really good that you had the, the self-awareness to uh, see that point. So I think if you tried to mix uh, poker and video games, I'm sure one of them would have uh, took the other's attention and maybe both would have been you know, suboptimal. So we talked about there being stubborn as well. So I think stubborn is a very interesting trait where it's got a lot of positives, where it allows you to stick out things. When things get rough, you, you weather it out. You got resilience to keep going when things get hard and most people quit. On the flip side, it's got some negative traits where you stick at things too long. You almost try to prove a point or you just can't give things up. Have there been any examples in your life where you've been too stubborn? Um, well, yeah, got to be, right? Lots. Uh, I'm trying to think of poker where I've been too stubborn about something. I can't think precisely in what it was, but I used to be quite an ego head with a lot of things where I wouldn't let something go. Um, whether or not I believed in it or not, it was just down to ego and, and, and kind of stubbornness at the same time. Now I'm a lot better at that. Um, and I'm, I'm able to just kind of like take a back seat and realize that I'm wrong. And here's how I learned from it. Actually, I was um, on a walk yesterday with my neighbor and we're talking, we're talking about this where I think poker trains you to be humble in a way, because you are facing adversity, but also you are facing just constant bombardment of being wrong, which is good because it, teaches you to just learn from your mistakes as opposed to um, at least me of being 20 years old and thinking I don't make mistakes I'm just good at what I'm doing you know and having this kind of innate self uh, innate sense of self-worth which is just crap um, so I think uh, yeah I was just very stubborn down to ego and now that's I've realized that that's just not the way to be and, and it's actually very important to be wrong 
a lot of the time because then you, you you don't have this um attachment with being right anymore yeah so you said it's been very humbling for you being a poker player in the quiz we asked you before the for the podcast you you said you were a bit of a sore loser i think prior getting into poker so how does that show up compared to like say, being able to take losses and put your ego aside where where's the sore loser and you showed up in your poker career Oh, well, I'm still a sore loser. <laughs> I still don't like losing. But again, I think that is partly down to the variance, to be honest with you. Um, I think I'd be a much, much better loser. Like, okay, I can actually prove this as well, because if I lose to someone who plays a spot better than me, I'm not a sore loser. Mm-hmm. If they make a really good call and then it turns out to be right and there was a cool blocker effect or something happening or just like a basic thing that I was missing, I'm not a sore loser at all. I'm also a loser when they make a mistake and they get and they get uh, rewarded for it. So actually, I would say objectively, I'm not a sole. I mean, definitely partly, but I, I would split it. I would say um, if if they play better than me, then I am humbling myself and saying they play better than me. They deserved it. I don't deserve to win. But if I think I deserve to win, then you best believe that I'm not gonna. You know, I might shake their hand, but I might be mumbling something under my breath. You know, <laughs> kind of thing. You could say you're, you're a sore loser only under certain conditions, but most right. of the time it sounds like, yeah, if things go, uh, yeah, if you get outplayed almost, it's almost like if somebody fairly outplays you, it's like, okay, I, I can accept that. But if you get unlucky, they get lucky or they make a mistake and get rewarded, then it's like, that doesn't sit well. And then the sore loser, yeah. I think that comes down to uh, this innate feeling of what's right and what's wrong. And I think it's something that all poker players need to kind of juggle with or battle with where very often poker feels unfair. Very often poker is unfair. It's, it doesn't even even out, maybe over whole, whole careers and over big samples, but there's a level of unfairness that goes on day to day where people get rewarded over and over by making mistakes. And there's almost nothing that's comparable. Like if you go into school and in your normal life, if someone makes mistakes, they fail the test. If you go into sport and someone messes up, they lose the game. Like, but in poker, people can make mistakes and get rewarded over and over. And in our mind, we're just like, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. And we haven't experienced so much unfairness for so long, in a, in a, especially when we're so invested in it. So uh, yeah, I, I can see like why it becomes difficult to deal with. And yeah, it's just understanding like, or getting to know yourself well enough to go right. Even when things don't go my way, even when it is unfair, I've got to be get, getting better at dealing with that. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one to, to explore at some point. I, so Rene, I, are, are you a sole loser? Sorry, go. I just want to say one thing as well. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I feel like we as poker players think that poker has this crazy sense of variance, which I think is true. Also depends on what format you're playing. If you're playing cash, I actually feel like poker has quite a low sense of variance. So let's just like compare with the real world. Let's say you're Roger Federer and you've just trained the entire year for this event. And then a week before the event, you you fall ill and then you can't play the event or you do and, and you don't win. Wouldn't that be like an insane level of variance where you've trained the whole year and your EV was really high. Your EV was like basically to, to get first place. Like 90% of the time you come first, 5% of the time you come second, 3% of the time you come third, and 2% of the time you can't compete. And then you hit the 2%. Mm-hmm. And you know that only happens one in 50 years. And lo and behold, it happened this year. So I feel like actually poker has a low sense of variance because what's the biggest thing that can happen to you if you're playing cash? Maybe you take a big shot and then you lose a huge pot. But that only has like maximal effect of like a month of variance mm. and that's still mm. really rare and it's never happened to me i've never taken a big shot and then lost a massive pot to be honest so i actually feel like um we play or we live a life that actually has fairly low variance i think if you are playing a more mainstream um like yeah tennis or football like world cup one every four years right 
mm. and you're you're one of 11 players you've got to rely on 10 other teammates mm. you might you might be training every damn day of the year for four years but if your teammates don't do the same thing and they can't fall through you never win the world cup that must be really annoying yeah i think it comes down to how many opportunities you get to compete as a poker player you compete every day every day is game time every day is olympic final every day is I can show up. So uh, there's not so much damage that can be done because tomorrow you can just play tomorrow. So there's another, even getting sick, as soon as you're, you're better again, you can, you can play again. And yeah, I think um, Novak Djokovic at the Australian Open would be a great example. He was mm. favorite to win the tournament, got, yep. gets to Australia with his exemption uh, kind of COVID test. And as he arrives, they take it off him, put him to a hotel. He wins the appeal so he can play again. He's the hot, hot favorite to win the tournament. He's won it eight times. And then literally the day before the tournament, as he's practicing on the courts, they go, no, you're not playing, uh, you're going home. Pretty extreme events. And yeah, that, that is the pretty extreme run bads. I think the difference is like they have those extremes. I think Olympic athletes are a great example, like you said, because like every four years, everything's got to go right. So on that one day, at that one time, you feel great. You're at your best. Any injury in the buildup, any illness that could take you out of it, anything that goes wrong with training in the last few weeks, that's, compromises performance can can yeah just basically take you out of a four-year trainer block whereas poker players have it's almost like more niggles like more constant that's a little bit unfair that's a little bit unfair so we don't have the big extreme things well it depends what format you play but yeah i think it's uh i think a lot of poker players do struggle with that innate feeling that poker is unfair i i know some people run good their whole careers but even those guys generally feel that poker is unfair to them it's almost like i think we've spoken to pads there patrick leonard who's Basically, he was saying, I've run, I've run good my whole career. I've run good. Spots have worked out. But then he started playing a bit live and didn't get some cashes in some live tournaments. And his, his mind was going, you're so unlucky. You're so unlucky. Why me? Why me? And it's really hard for us not to feel like the victim because, yeah, there's just so many scenarios, uh, small scenarios where poker can make us feel unlucky because, yeah, variance is not going to run out. True. So, Rene, would you class yourself as a, a bad loser or are you a good loser? Mm. I would say I find myself a little bit in the in in the middle. I don't really think I'm a very sore loser. I do I do also have what Clenty has. If someone plays a hand very nicely, I just get owned. I you know <laughs> applaud applaud to him. You know, uh, I would say I get indeed most tilted when people do something ridiculous and can then get lucky. It's like what the fuck. Uh, I remember last time. Uh, you know, when someone just makes a call, you're like, dude, what the fuck? Or just blast you in preflop all in with a complete ridiculous hand. You know, they suddenly get deuces in preflop and you're there with ace king. I'm like, are you kidding me? How did you get deuces in? Are you, and you're going to hold twice. Now, that, deuces that deuces never tilt. loses, as they say. <laughs> monster tilt. Now, that, that, so so in, in that regards, I... Uh, I think I'm a, I'm indeed a sore loser, but actually I really liked your 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 view on variance. We are indeed compared to these other examples that you gave. We don't actually have that much variance. I can in, indeed imagine if you're a tournament player, it becomes a bit more like an athlete, yeah. where it's like, oh, World Series, this is the moment. Oh, I ran bad in, especially you know when you run bad in a couple of times, you get deep, and every time you bubble the final table, or you get eighth instead of first. You know, there's a lot of big variance there. But yeah, indeed, cash. It's actually a good perspective. I will, uh, I will uh, take that with me for the next time things are not going so well. I'm like, ah, there's people who have it way worse, right? Helps, helps put it in perspective. I also, um, I wanted, to, I wanted to point on one thing that you mentioned. You were saying 
you were you're actually referring to the it's called the halo effect where you think you're good at something and automatically you think you're good at something else so for the people who are interested in it you can look that up and you then mentioned like i'm good in numbers but i don't have certain strengths that you need as a poker player and what what i i actually thought adam was not gonna ask so what are these strengths but it didn't come so now now i'll ask that question what are some of the strengths that you think you miss as a poker player um i'm not even entirely sure if you were so for i'll ask you a question if you remove solvers from poker what makes a good poker player poker player is it psychology is it numbers is it creativity is it consistency what would you say are the defining factors i mean obviously all all those forced but i would say then the psychology of just understanding what people are up to and like, oh, if I do this, you do that, or you're going to interpretate this as this, or I interpret, you're, you're always in the other guy's head and you're always one step ahead. So I would say that is going to be very important, just understanding how players play. And that's, I guess, is still the same versus recreational, right? Understanding the psychology behind recreationals. For example, for people, I, I know uh, making strategies around data of, playing against recreationals is, is similar. You see a data and you try to understand the psychology. Why does a fish uh, behave? Why, why do these stats show up? What does that say about how the fish thinks about a certain spot that leads him to have certain leaks, right? So I would say the psychology and then the creative part is then coming up with the strategy, interpreting it, and then coming up with the strategy to find ways to exploit that. So I would say those are then the strengths. So now you're going to say that that's what I miss. <laughs> I would say, I mean, I feel like, well, definitely the creative side, I fall short on. Um, I do think, although maybe this is a bit of a halo effect thing, I feel like I do have that good grasp on the psychological side. Mm -hmm. um, I, I feel like I get that intuition where they might take a certain timing or a certain size. And then I don't even, even know why I think what I think, but I, I, right, I think, okay. I'm going to do this because I did that. I'm going to do this. So I, I do feel like I have a strong um, instinctive side based on the psychology, but perhaps my creativity is just so lacking that uh, I just can't have success. I do think that without solvers, I would still be a winning poker player because I was a winning, I went from 10 to 50 in a year, but I don't think I would have ever got past 200 without that. I think that I would, I, I would have a cap there because guys like you would just kind of see through me or maybe not see through me, but you would, you would end up just outperforming. You, I, more. I would come up with more creative, creative strategies, basically. Yeah. You would have more tools in your, in your kit than I would. So um, I would say that my, perhaps my psychology is good, but not good enough. And then my create, my creative side is just lacking massively. That makes Whereas sense. You Actually, seem I, to have good both. I, I also wanted to uh, point or go back to a point where you were saying that you what you enjoy the most is go to poker stars, find the toughest lineups, and play a couple of tables three four handed. Well, I, I particularly enjoy three or four handed. I think they should just remove EP MP under the gun from the poker tables. That yeah, just do everyone a favor if there's a poker side listening, just remove that shit. Um, I like it also more, you know, when ranges become a little bit wider and it becomes a bit more the wild wild west. And you know, whereas if you play in spots where there's a fair few combos, error, error, error. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. If you make a mistake, it's less, yeah, I guess less of an EV mistake in, in, in wider positions. But 
what you liked about it was the to kind of see if you could beat them, right? The competitive drive. For example, if I play against recreationals, I actually take a lot of joy from trying to get the maximum out of them as possible. Like, mm. and this, I guess, then comes the, I like to create strategies against recreationals. I like to try to figure out what they do. And then playing against recreational suddenly becomes fun. You're like, hey, yes, I know that if I do this, you're going to do that. Oh, yeah, this is one of these spots. And then you execute it. You come up with a strategy against recreationals. You start executing it and you see it work. Oh, yeah, I induced a great bluff here. Oh, yeah, I knew he was going to do that. So you take, I take a lot of joy from that, for example, if I play against recreationals. But you probably see more as like, let's say you play forehand at the recreational just game. Oh, motherfucker. He destroyed the game. <laughs> What are you go what, what are you doing here? Get off my table. Sometimes sometimes I feel that way. Um I've never thought about your perspective of maximizing EV. Maybe that's something I can take with me because uh sometimes it just feels like especially if you're playing heads up and they're really really nitty and your win rate just comes from them folding blinds. It's just like such a monotonous grind of just like yeah, yeah, okay. oh so, I stole so, so now we're playing against semi fish. That I hate the most. Don't join don't join the table if you're a semi fish. Because then, you know, I cannot go all all creative mm. on you. But it's also not like, you know, you trigger my competitive nature. So then just right. join, don't don't join the table. Just just okay. three four-handed. If a semi-fish, often you see me leave if a semi-fish joins the table. It's like uh he loses like minus five, minus ten. It's like, come on, I want minus twenty, minus thirty, minus forty. I want the loser. Then we can start playing fun poker. Yeah. As a guy on stars, uh Sasha something, Sasha underscore 1900 something. He's got Bentley as his avatar. Mm -hmm. He's like a, a losing player who loses at a small loss rate. And he's really, really tight. And yeah, I've left, left tables when he joins because it's just, you know, me, four regs and him. It's just like, this is just yes. boring no, those, ta those tables, I, I, I instantly leave. Yeah. There, there's just no, I see no point. There's no financial incentive. There's no competitive incentive. There's no creative incentive. It's just like that table has gone to waste. Yeah. Time to open a new one. So then I then I see plenty already sitting at the new one, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we can have some fun there. Uh, so yeah, but it's it's the difference because people often also, and I I fall victim of that. I re I remember at a very long point in my career, I played a lot of three four handed. I think if I go through my database, I've played maybe 150, 150,000 hands, two hundred thousand hands, three four hand, uh, and for. A, that win rate is actually higher than my six-handed win rate. And that was because if a fish joined the table, I would just zone out because I would be like, oh, it's a fish. I beat the fish. I'm better than the fish, so I don't have to focus on that table anymore. And as soon as I started realizing that, it was like, oh, shit, I need to see the fish joining as an opportunity. So it's not, the goal is not I'm trying to beat the fish. No, the goal is I'm trying to make the maximum. How can I make the maximum amount of money at this table of everyone? And that then suddenly got me re-engaged again. Like, okay, well, yes, I'm winning, but how can I really squeeze the last bit of money out of this guy? And that then triggered my sort of competitive nature again. Okay, let, let's try to figure out how is this possible? Or I remember then that was in a time where scripts were also still allowed. A uh, very, very bad bum hunting wreck scripted in my game. Then my goal was, how can I make sure that this guy is not winning in the game, in my game that he just scripted in? I know this is, this is a little bit the ego side of the wacko coming up, but you know, it's a couple of years ago. But these were all ways that I would trigger the game becoming six-handed or a fish joining the table, make, yeah, to trigger my competitive nature and make it more enjoying, I guess. So maybe that's something you can, uh, you can take away.
I've actually, next taken, I've actually taken notes, yeah, by the screen. Maximizing EV versus recreational. Because whatever can kind of, um, well, firstly, just enjoying it. But if you can, if you can find some competition from recreationals and not auto like zone out, as you were saying, then that's a goal in of itself is just to not zone out versus them. Because that's what I do too often. Yeah, so I'll, that's my tip to you. Um, going back to uh, going to the present moment, uh, I'm curious, let's say, for example, uh, you and I, we get on a Zoom call next week to do some poker strategy. What are you most excited about in poker right now? That you would then share with me, like, Weko, we're going to talk today about the topic I'm most excited about in poker right now. And that is? I would say, I, mean, I don't know if it's if excitement or just um, there's just a lot of stuff that I don't know, um, which is 4-bit pots. I feel like I'm understudied in 4-bit pots and I ran a few sims recently. And you get, you know what's, actually, there is something that's, that's exciting is there's a lot of just GTO strategies in 4-bit pots that you never see in application, which not only means that I don't know it, but nobody else knows it either. So I would say that kind of excites me is um, seeing these new game plans that I know firstly will be confusing people and, and secondly will just uh, give me win rate over them. So the competitive side comes out again. If I can play three-handed with you and another guy and I can do something that you've never seen before, then um, that's going to confuse you, right? There's, there's actually a spot in poker in forward pots where you can bet 5% of the pot. And if you run all of the sizing, so 5, 10, 16, 20, 50%, 5% is the only size that's used. And it's like the highest EV and most frequent and everything. Um, that, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, maybe that's just me nerding out, but I feel like betting 5% of the pot's a pretty cool thing to be doing. I usually stick with 10, but hey, okay, I'm going to take this tip and, and see if I can lower it down to five. No, actually, four by pots, shout out to, uh, probably actually when this podcast is live, my new masterclass would have come out, which includes how to play four by pots out of position. And I remember my last lesson I did in our CFP was about four by pots. So caller, four better, in position, out position, called four by pots. And indeed, if you look at, for example, what population is doing and what solver suggests, mm. I mean, there are some very big gaps going on. So indeed, what people are doing compared to what solver suggests, there's a very big gap, uh, which which also makes sense, right? Four-bet pots are understudied for a reason because how many four-bet pots do you actually play? Yeah, not many. Not many at all. And it kind of comes back, you know, as, uh, you asked me the question on how would you give, uh, or what would your advice be to how to use, a sol how to use solvers? Mm -hmm. For a long time, I was just using four-bet pots or I was studying four-bet pots hand by hand. I was creating the SPR as per the situation. I was creating the ranges as but well, the ranges were static, but the, the SPR was different. Um, and it took me a while just to like, you know, finally realize, okay, create static forward pots, um, run aggregations, see CBAT strategies, see fold strategy. Uh, like there's a lot of spots as well for the pots where if you're out of position, um, you are not supposed to have a check call range. It's either donk or check raise and never check call. And that's a new thing to me because you never get that in three of pots. Obviously in three of pots, you're, you're pretty happy. To, I mean, there are like very extreme situations where you don't have a check call, uh, but you, you're talking like you might play never really. Whereas in four of pots, there's a lot of new things. So um, yeah, population yeah, is far, far away. For four of pots, I remember especially out of position caller compared to how, people, how population plays as in position. There is mm -hmm. some weird ass stuff going on, man. Indeed, yeah. what, what you said, I, I've, I've, uh, I've seen those spots as well where check calling is just not a thing. Uh, and 
also even even probably also you look down further the tree what do you do after check raising that's all there's also some weird stuff going on there it's like what it, it becomes the most insane merch fest that you've ever seen. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. if, if you start, the thing is also, if you start to implement that in-game, this is actually where you also mentioned trainers, uh, that you use trainers. I find trainers very helpful in uncommon spots, so like four bad pots or... Uh, because you can suddenly get quite a lot of volume in, in a certain spot. But then when it comes, because the SPR is so low, it's almost plays, it plays like, you know, you're playing 10BB poker. But obviously, you're throwing in stacks with quite marginal hands. So it can be quite challenging for, for, for your mindset, I would say. Just splashing in money. It can feel quite spewy. Would you agree? Yeah, I actually played a hand yesterday. I haven't looked at it yet. Um, and it was, uh, I called a four bet with ace, queen, offsuit, small blind versus button. The flops four, three, deuce with two diamonds. And I had ace, queen with the queen of diamonds. And he just shipped in 80 into 40. I called. He had jack side, ace, queen. I don't know if it's good, but yeah, that was a, that was a hand. I just I just flopped ace queen on four three deuce with a queen high flush draw and check called two times pot for all in, and it felt okay. I mean, I had forty percent against jacks as well, so the hand that I was and he had he had jacks with the diamonds, so kind of like even against the hand that I was expecting him to have, I still had the equity. So I imagine my call is good, but that's very uncomfortable, just like calling off ace ace high there. But I think it's yeah a good... yeah in, in, yeah, especially on these wheel boards, uh, the the air does a lot of jamming. It's just like he has so many. Hands that benefit from the gem straight away, right? Like exactly yep. the hand that you mentioned, and also his bluffs will have so much, so much equity, and often even dominate your calling range. For example, Ace King there, easy gem because you can call Ace Queen, you will call other flush draws, you can deny equity of a hand like Ten Jack suited, which is great uh, because yeah, I mean, what, what do you do? You check, and then he starts maybe bluffing you. So there's a lot of incentives to just gem straight away there. Uh, hmm. But yeah, your call seems okay from from, from what i see here yeah i'm not sure if it is good but it definitely kind of tests you mentally. you do need the like, diamond i think from oh yeah from yeah my mind. i i think i definitely need the diamond um yeah i don't know if it's good but like you say it, it does test you mentally because it kind of gets you out of the comfort zone of what and he should gem ace queen himself as well especially if he doesn't mm. in this case also like i said the diamond arguments goes both ways if he doesn't have diamonds you call more diamonds if he has a diamond uh, he has more equity for his hand, like tens. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, my conclusion was just just rip it in, get it over with. I mean, there's no easier it. spot, right? You see a wheelboard, you're like, oh, okay, I'm all in. Or you see like the Jack Ten, the Jack Ten X two tone, okay, I'm all in. Mm -hmm. And there's no further mistakes that you can make. It's it's quite nice to play that way. Um, so four web pots, okay, we can have a we can have a little session on four web pots, uh, Clenty. No no problem. Uh, Another question that I had for you, you, you mentioned also that you could tilt off players who make mistakes. I wanted to ask you, who is who would you consider to be a nemesis? You don't have to call nicknames. Who do you consider to be a nemesis at the table? And why is he your nemesis? What is it about him or her, uh, we don't know, that triggers you? It triggers me. Um... um... I'm not going to name the nickname, but he's a heads-up player. And he used to only sit me in heads-up, but only one table and, or rather, only one entry. And there's like this unwritten rule in heads-up, which is that if you want to if you want to contest the lobby, play two entries. You can't play three or four. It's just heads-up, zoom, and he plays two. 
And if you want to contest someone, then play two entries. Unless the person holding the lobby only wants to play one, then it's fine. But he would just sit me, only one table, and he'd play really slow and he'd play really nitty. And because I was stubborn, I didn't want to give him the lobby because then he wins. But he would only play me one table. So he would just piss me off because he was like, in my mind, it's bad etiquette to do that. Um, it'd be like, for example, me playing against you, but then taking you know, all my time bank for every single decision almost on purpose it's like well it's not against the rules but it's just a dick thing to do right so i'd say yeah. he would be my nemesis just because it really annoyed me what he would do because it would obviously interrupt my grind elsewhere as well where i'd be having to play one table of heads up um i would say him really the only guy that i would say is like a, a nemesis but not anymore he doesn't do it so I, I don't think i have a nemesis i would say my only um nemesis would be like a, a really annoying player that's very good not annoying as in doing dick things like that and there's a few of them. Um, Maku FZ is, is extremely good and annoying. Um, he's definitely like the player I would least want to see on the table. He kind of like goes past the equilibrium where I want to play against good players, but then it gets to a point where he's that annoying and good that actually he can just sod off. <laughs> like I'll play against good good guys that aren't that good. Do you know what I mean? Where he's just he's just uh, yeah he's too annoying. I would say he's my nemesis. Where I didn't play many hands against him, but whenever I do, it's like yep, yeah, it's always a reminder he's really 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 bloody good. No, he's definitely very tough to play against. I can uh, I can confirm that. Sometimes though, if you if you put, let's say for example, we gather a bunch of uh, of regulars and we discuss who we find the hardest to play against, then some people name a name, the other guy really him because yeah. on the short term also you can just like I said, it, you can just get in a couple of spots where you just feel like he's keep he keeps on owning you, right? I remember in 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 the CP we would have discussions about like the biggest nit. Uh, uh, and everyone was just running over him. And there's the one guy, he always hero calls me. And then everyone yeah. would look at him like, he hero calls? Never, never. You can just keep on going, he will keep on full. No, against me, no. But do you know, it's just a short-term sample that makes you think of something about a player that might actually not be true, right? We need longer-term samples. But even in the long-term samples, I'm sure uh, I would also prefer not to have him at my tables. Okay. So going forward in poker, what are uh, what are some of your goals? Hey, you your goal used to be I want to make money out of this game, right? But I'm sure over the years, you have every time when you reach to the next level, be like, oh, I don't know what what's next, what's next. What are your current goals? I would say to like really establish myself as like the the top circle of poker, which I would say is the I mean, it's a shame because it doesn't really run anymore, but like the, the 10K games would be nice to play in regularly. And they have been running a bit recently. I don't know if you've seen between Nacho, Davey, Munez, and Stefan. They've been running some, some pretty nice games. So I'd be, I would want to be playing those games by, I'm not sure when, it depends kind of on how my shots go. Um, so I would, I would really, I would say my goal is to establish myself at 10K. And it took me a whole year to establish myself at 5k because every shot that I, I took busted. But like, fingers crossed, it seems to be okay now. Um, so I would say it's just to get to 10k. And then after that, I don't know because now 20k and 40k games only run on GG and I don't want to play there. So I feel like 10k is the last hurdle that you can really get to on PokerStars. And then don't know what happens after that. I've been thinking about either PLO or tournaments. Um, probably play at PLO because it's cash. So that would be maybe my next step after is to, is to learn a new game, a new discipline, but still within the world of poker. All right. And then so, so you're, you want to sort of finish the job. And then basically, mm. uh, when, you, when you get there, you quit. 
or you're gonna you're gonna look for a different challenge where you can start from zero that's basically what you're saying not quit i definitely won't i've, I've been thinking about this for a while i definitely won't quit poker um i can definitely see myself playing poker it, uh, maybe not necessarily playing poker as i am now where i'm like actively playing most days um but i'm definitely going to be coaching poker or you know doing something in the poker world because i feel like um, especially with me where i dropped out of school i have like no qualifications at all i don't even have gcse's adam would know uh, what they are so i have nothing so i feel like I, I can't you know i don't have the benefit of having for example there are other poker players who have degrees where they might be able to come out of poker and then go and get different jobs so i'm definitely going to stick within poker but it might not be um actively playing high stakes it might be playing high stakes plo instead or something but i definitely wouldn't just quit this and then go to a new thing um, because I'm too invested. I feel like I've just put way too many eggs into this basket to just like drop the basket when I get to the top. I feel like that would just be a massive hemorrhage in, in EV. Uh, that makes sense. Huh? Your poker learned you to think of in terms of EV, right? So this is a good, uh, this is a good example of that. Uh, you mentioned Nacho, David Jones, Stefan. Uh, definitely not a game that I would sit in. Uh, I like money. So yeah, <laughs> that doesn't really seem like a great idea. Uh, what do you think is the gap that you would still need to close in order to sit down at the 10k tables between those three and be a winner at the games well maybe this seems crazy but I feel like I would be a winner in those games in my mind mm -hmm. um, Stefan me and him heads up no he would crush me I actually did play a session against him heads up he is we spoke about the, the logicist versus the instinctive guy he is at least he definitely is instinctive he might be both maybe he can be both maybe he's just an ultra genius uh, but he's definitely instinctive to an extent and i think he he is just very 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 good at it but i think the other three players i think nunez davy and nacho in my mind i think i'm competitive with and i don't, I don't think stefan's that far ahead to just kind of like crush everyone um especially when he's been putting a lot of eggs into heads up for the last year so um i think that the issue would just be bankroll honestly um, I don't know. Don't get me wrong. Do I think I sit into that game and win five big blinds? No, I think like best case scenario, I win 1.5 blinds. But, you know, the rake is basically non-existent at 10K. You're getting rakes like quarter of a big blind tier. So if you're just winning one big blind, you're still making $75 every 100 hands. So it would still kind of show itself. So I just think bankroll. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe this comes down to the, you know, the innate confidence then get proved, proven wrong afterward. You know, I've never played 10K. So maybe I've got to sit down, play there, realize, okay, I was wrong. Let's just not play that game again. Um, but, you know, until I get proven otherwise, I feel like I am very marginally winning in that game. Yeah, but also at some point, I guess, except for Stefan, the other guys, they also play 2K, 5K. So you play already quite yeah. regular against them, even 1K, some of them, um, except for, for Stefan. Actually, Stefan also, Dot, in, the, in our previous podcast, also mentioned Stefan. And he just said, like, yeah, that guy, I don't know what he's doing, but, it, but, but it's working. That, yeah. That's how we. That, that, that's how we described it. Yeah, he. Pl I played a session with him at heads up, and over like I think three hundred hands, which in heads up is reasonable, right? You get a lot of, over three hundred hands. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of like one point five thousand hands in six max. You get like an idea of how they're playing. He was three betting forty five percent, right? Which is just crazy. I mean, that's your opening range on the button. He was three betting against me, and then he was having um, his bet sizes post flop were third half two third pot and two pot and i would say two pot was his most common sizing between them um so yeah he's just playing a different game but you know what it, it i couldn't really figure out anything from him apart from i'm not doing that again 
because by the end of the hour i had i i, I was like so um not not emotional what's the word where uh, adrenaline fueled i was just like so high on adrenaline from playing against him because you're just like all in every fucking two hands yeah, 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 not, yeah. not quite I, I made over 300 hands i must have had like 10 all-ins and i ended up just being like okay i'm done I, I can't play against this guy anymore because you know maybe maybe objectively i can compete but i can't because i'm not in my mindset against him i can't focus so yeah so he basically i guess he for the people who don't know he plays a over aggressive style uh, oh, as you as, as, as you just mentioned uh is it in general i would say the better players they play a more aggressive style um what you would say that his style is so aggressive that it puts people out of their comfort zone so basically he induces b and c game of other people due to his yeah. aggressive staying playing style. yeah and and also like i don't want to make it seem like if we're both playing a game i'm competing anyway like you know i'm probably not competing even if i am playing a game against him um, but just for the sheer fact that he does induce B and C, just widens the gap. Um, and yeah, it's just induced by playing really, really tough. I mean, like I said, he had all those sizings and two pot was hand on heart, the most common sizing, at least that I experienced. Uh, and that was consistent, by the way. So he would go two pot flop, two pot turn, right? So it was just like exponentially increasing. So in a, Wait, single, race, a single race pots, yeah. Yeah, um, maybe in three pots, I can't. I don't think he was using it in three pots, no, actually. But in single race pots, he would just bet 10 into five on the flop and then whatever it was on the turn. And then by the, you're basically playing for stacks. You're, you're quite handcuffed on the turn. Yeah, Wait, you're basically I, like, it's, assume, Assuming you're playing a 100 BB stack, it's like, okay, now I'm in left in a min race, I'll win or full spot. Right. He just, he really, really puts you to the test. And that's one hand where um, I, and that's not, yeah, so. He basically went bet, 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 and then called. I was bluffing. I, I, I went check, call, check, call, check, jam. And he basically called the bottom of his value bet range, which is obviously terrible in theory, but he won because I was bluffing. So it made me think like, God, I can't even fucking get him to fold the bottom of his value range. Like he's just so, maybe he didn't know the theory or maybe he did and then was very aware of what I was doing uh, psychologically. I'm not sure. In any case, uh, he's just so wonky that I, I definitely had my confidence knocked. You know, I played for him. For yeah, one and, and that and that's hard, right? You're like, what the fuck? You you call the bottom of your range, but in the same time, you're over aggressive. So I have to play back. Then what do I do? I cannot bluff the guy. I I yeah. can, what do I do? Felt helpless. You know when yeah, you play helpless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is that is exactly. And this is good then about six max. Let's say he's at my table. I can be like, all right, I'll give up. Uh, I don't know, 33 percent of my range pre flop in every spot. Same on the flop, and then you know his overaggression will bluff into my stronger range, and I can make more money versus the other guys at the table. But if you're playing heads up, <laughs> that that doesn't work. Yeah, and also in heads in, in six max, you can just afford to fold most of your hands. You yeah. know, if you're playing six handed, you're only supposed to be a bit like twenty five percent, maybe high if you're playing in lower rake environments, but it's not that much more. In heads up, it's eighty, so you can't get away with just folding thirty three percent too much. Because if you do that, you're just losing blinds immediately. Like you're just hemorrhaging so much money that you can't even make it back. So, yeah, he's he's a complete like most of the very good players are all theoretical, but he's a complete outlier. And I think um, he's like definitely maybe just the best in the world. I feel like the best three players are either you know Linus, Mate Boyfin, and um, Stefan, at least in cash games. And I don't, you know, maybe Stefan is, is third place between mate, boyfriend, Linus and him, or maybe he's first, you know, but like no one really knows because they really never battle against one another. Um, 
but yeah, he's he's a wild card, but he's also very, very, very good. Very, 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 very good. What do you think of uh, Barry Sweet? Do you oh, follow he's... any of the heads up games? Yeah, yeah. Um, he's just obviously he's like a Stefan, but I, in my opinion, um, Barry is like not so solid in theory, at least in no limit theory. I have no idea about PLO. Um, because it's clear he makes like pretty not not basic errors, but he makes mistakes. However, he's just so switched on intuitively that he makes up for it. Who knows how much he makes up for, but it's just clear that he will lock on to something, whether it's a timing tell or a sizing tell um, or a game flow tell, whatever, but he locks on to the in, in, in the intuitive side of the game. Uh, and also from what I've heard, he just, he just, you know, he's been playing poker for so long. He's played so many hands. He play, he's been playing high stakes for so long that he doesn't really have the emotional tolls that other players do. Where... Yeah, that, that, that is usually also a thing. At higher stakes, more money. That, that's also, for example, something to take in consideration if you play 10K. Oh, especially in the beginning, new stake. Or yeah. I think I talk for most players. The, the first couple of hands at your highest stake are always a bit jittery in the beginning, you know? So, yeah. or you are a bit more of a gamble addicted and that actually fires you up. Oh, more money, let's go. Uh, most people not, are, can not be me. a little bit jittery. So that, that's also something to take in consideration when you take a shot at higher stakes. Uh, what about the Phil Helmut setup game? <laughs> no idea. I don't, I don't follow any of that no. stuff. You haven't followed no. any of the, the white magic movement? No, I did see one hand where, like, I forget. He's like, I folded 10 hands in a row and I get dealt King Jack off and I still make the fold and I was right. And he, I don't know, some, something like that where he made a really sick fold preflop and he was super elated about it. But it was like a massive punt as well. It's like, I'm pretty sure like Negranu opened and he just like open folded some hand or something. Am I right or am I way off with that? Uh, I, I, I don't follow it that closely. Oh, uh, right. But I saw, yeah. some, I saw some clip of it where he was like jumping about saying, I'm, I'm the greatest, I folded this hand. It's like, wait, it's like literally an open raise and he folded. Strange. All right, not not a big Helmut fan. I uh, no. I know, or at least you know, not on a not not, not his on game. a technical game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. You you mentioned uh, um, had the over aggression for for example, Stefan. In general, I would say over aggression is harder to play against because yeah, what is the adjustment versus over aggression? Yeah, it's not to fault. Are you really going to not fault every every fucking time? That's hard. Mm. It's really hard, you know? Maybe sometimes it's easy to then be like, hmm, he seems a little bit out of line. I have a frequency call. Let's just call this 100% of the time. Look at me exploiting that guy. But yeah, when someone is so aggressive, the correct strategy is literally, or at least, you know, if we play on the river, not to fault, right? You either rebluff him or you 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 cannot fault. But people do fault, right? You, you have to fault at some point. So it's very hard to play against. So besides aggression, what do you think is another characteristic that these high stakes, the good high stakes players have in common? I think they're very structured in their game. Um, and that's something that I would like to think that I do a good job of as, as well, is that I don't make things up on the fly. Occasionally you have to, because the spot's weird. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, a lot of the time you're just playing a game that you already have a good idea of. So yeah, I would say, I mean, Stefan's definitely an outlier because he does things differently. He's very tricky and he makes the game tree you know, he very deliberately skews that game tree. But a lot of the players who are very, very good play the same game tree. You know, in fact, if you if you actually rail the high stake heads up games from PokerStars, and then you bring up the hand history replayer, you'll see that if you organize it by pot size, you get the same pot sizes as a, as a pattern. So you get like five of the same pot size, and then it jumps down to the next one. Basically, you know, the 
the category of single-race pot that it was because they're using the same sizings, they're having the same bet, bet sizing patterns, whereas like a weaker player might not even use hotkeys and they might just like, you know, deliberately type out the numbers. Uh, and then you get this, you know, less less of a pattern of, of, of pot sizes. So I think like, yeah, um, structure overall, they know what they're doing. When I'm coaching myself, I'm always doing, you know, uh, I'm not just jumping about the game tree. So if I'm coaching someone, it's going to be right. This session, single race pot in position on the flop. Next session, single race pot in position on the turn. So there's a very deliberate theme going on. And I think that's the way to learn poker at the higher level. Obviously, at lower level, you can go about it in many different ways. But at the higher level, I think you need that structure and um, and and yeah, overall understanding of what's going on. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, my last question for you, and then I'll hand you over to Adam, and then uh, I think we're going to close it off. In the introduction, uh, you mentioned that you contribute a lot of your success to hard work, uh, good work ethic. You also mentioned you believe that anyone can achieve anything if you just put your mind into it, or as you mentioned in the beginning, you go just all in in one thing. What piece of advice would you want to give the audience who's listening who is trying to walk the same path as you are walking to make it towards high stakes? Cool. Nice question. Um, firstly, uh, okay. Um, let's just say as like a bullet point way of answering. Firstly, um, you're probably not as smart as you think you are. Everyone goes through this. Maybe there are a couple of savants listening to it, but you know, everyone is um, not as smart as they think they are. I think when they start playing poker, secondly, you've got to be consistent with it and therefore patient. So, you know, if you're playing poker, don't just hope to make money in the next month or two, right? It's a long, long, long-term game here. So uh, consistency and believe in yourself. Even though I've just said, you know, you're probably not as smart as what you think you are, still don't think you're an idiot who can't compete at the level above you, right? Every end of the day, you are playing against humans and hopefully, right? And um, there isn't, they're not this like, I remember I was playing lower stakes, like 10 and 25. I thought guys at 200 and 500 are just like machines. They're really, really good. They understand every spot. And then you start playing there. It's like, wait a second. Like I'm competitive in this pool and I still have so many holes in my game. So to anyone who's playing lower stakes, let's say you're playing 10, 25, 50, 100, and you're looking at guys at 500 and 1,000 or 600 and L, whatever, those guys who you're looking up to still have massive holes in their game. I have massive holes in my game and Renee, you have massive holes too. And Adam, do you, I don't know if you're playing poker anymore or you, you've moved I'm not, on. No. Right. But when you were playing, you had massive holes in your game and you were still a successful professional. So everyone has holes. Even even the best like Linus and Barry have holes. They just have less of them and the holes are smaller, but they're still there. They're still still present in everyone's game. So I'd say believe in yourself, but mainly just the patience. You've got to be consistent and be patient. If, you, if you're like, if you're very impatient, which I am, then it's going to be tough because you're going to be kind of waiting for those results. But instead, try and look at poker in a sense of an environment of learning. So every day that you play, every hand that you play, every study session that you do, you are just building on your career. And that does mean sometimes that you work your ass off for a month and you end up like less better off than you were at the start of the month because variance happens. But that doesn't mean that you're actually less better off in terms of like your ability. You could be a much better poker player, but less financially well off because of bad run at the tables. So I would say I try and not think of things as a metric of how many dollars did you make or lose. That's important. A lot of wisdom there. Adam, do you have any final questions for our guest, Clenty? I've got one final question. We talked a bit before about your approach to studying and grinding, how you kind of split your hours. 
And you mentioned like how important balance is to you and also health and fitness for, for your life. So yeah, I think it'd be really nice for our listeners to, uh, for you to walk through a day in the life. What's a day in the life look like for on a poker day? And maybe if your off day is very different, you could explain that as well. But yeah, how do you approach your, your days? Yeah, sure. So uh, my, average, my, my average playing day, I play um, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. I take Monday, Tuesday off for coaching. And then Friday off is just kind of like a recovery day um, after playing on um, Wednesday, Thursday. So let's say on my Thursday, I will wake up somewhere between seven and nine and usually have a morning routine, which is just kind of normal stuff, normal mundane things, chill for an hour, plan the day. That will usually be study my first 25 to 50 in two 25 minute blocks, play for four hours. As soon as I finish playing, I always just go out for a walk. If the weather's crap, I go, I still go for a run or something, um, unless it's really bad or something. But yeah, I always, 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 always get out because for me, I find that getting out is the most important thing after a grind. I used to try and like lock myself in to do some journaling or something after a session, but I found actually I can just do the journaling after when I get back. So after a session, I'll go out for a walk or a run. Um, when I get back, have food, do a journal practice, which is just simply like, um, how is my discipline? How well did I play? What are some things that you did well? What are some things you didn't do well? It's very, very simple. Um, do some session review on that on, on the session. And um, then maybe chill, play some video games or something. Depending on I've got something else on, it might be like a study session with Ben or something like that. And um, that's basically day over after that. That's usually 9, 10 o'clock, chill, and then go to bed. So it starts with morning routine, study, play, fitness, journal, study, and then chill in the evening. Great stuff. I liked how you said you realized the importance of getting away from your computer and getting outdoors. I think that's a very, uh, I think a lot of players know that they should, but I think it's a very overutilized approach where a lot of players will just stay at the computer or stay indoors way too much of their day. So yeah, I really like that you're prioritizing that as part of your, your daily performance routines. And yeah, like you said, like you can journal after, you can do performance review after, you can look over hand issues after, you can do another study session, anything can come after, but I do think that having that break outdoors away from your computer is very good. So how long is your walk? Is it like 20 minutes, 30 minutes? What's a rough walking time for you? It depends. Sometimes I go for a hike and it's, you know, a couple of hours. Uh, usually if it's a run, just 15 minutes. If it's a walk, usually an hour because I've got a few parks behind me. Also as well, if you don't, if you're like so focused on wanting to do the studying, then actually what you can do is you can just do the studying while you're on the walk. You can just literally email yourself. I mean, that's how I do it. I email myself the hand histories, my phone, and I can just like look at the, look at the hand history and then think about it as I'm walking. So you can even passively study while you're walking if you want to. Usually I don't. That's, I mean, very rarely do I do that, but I've, I've done that a couple of times. Usually my walk though, I'm just kind of, um, I don't know if you've ever been to Heaton Park, Adam. Huh? Yeah. So you know how nice that is. Mm. So you can just, uh, you can walk through there. You've got Heaton Park, Armstrong Park, Jasmine Park. You've got loads of nice parks. So I'm just kind of walking and, and enjoying that. And I, t I find that actually at that point, I don't really want to think about poker. I'm usually thinking about some other things. So, yeah. Very nice. Yeah, he didn't. So we talked offline. Luke, Luke's living very close to where I was brought up and Heaton Park's gorgeous. I used to actually do um, 5K races around Heaton Park used to be on like nice. once a year. I can't remember what time of year it was, maybe December time. The nice 5K race around the park. Uh, yeah, really, really nice area. So uh, yeah, when you've got that option to go outdoors and get in, in nature, I think as a poker player, we need to realize that we need to look after ourselves a lot. And yeah, I think it's time outdoors is a very under, 
underutilized approach for a lot of players. I think especially online players can spend way too much of their net time of the day at a computer. Like I said, if you want, you can multitask it. You can let the brain run over hand histories. You can multitask by looking over stuff. I just let the brain think over spots that have came up. And then once you get back, your mind's a really good place to actually solve those problems. So how does your days look when you're not grinding? Do you do anything different on your, obviously you do, but how does a non-poker day look? Yeah, so I, um, Monday, Tuesday, I don't do my 25 to 50, my studying. I, I do that on the Friday, but not on the Monday, Tuesday. Uh, Monday, Tuesday is coaching. So I will have one session. I used to do two, but I've reduced the coaching now. So I only do one session a day. Depends on what time that is. Maybe it's a guy um, in Asia, sometimes a guy in the US, and it depends. I'll just kind of work around their schedule. Um, so otherwise it will be wake up and do first thing coaching or I'll do other things. The other things are um, going for a walk, doing real life chores, uh, doing personal training, and then studying um, on the Friday. So there's not much else to be honest. I try to just detox if I can, which I, I wish I would do more, would be watch a movie because I really enjoy watching movies, but I usually find that I don't have the time to do that. Um, although to be fair, I always find the time to go for a walk and have PT. So I could probably could do better at just finding time to watch a movie. But um, yeah, I would say the I would just not play, and instead I would introduce uh, the the PT slash video games into my I'd weave that into the day, and just normal chores as well, you know, normal things. Are your sessions with a personal trainer at the gym? Do you go to a, a gym to train? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some sometimes we go for a run, uh, but most mostly um, um, Wednesdays we do uh, cardio, and then Fridays we do weights. Yeah, nice. How long have you been exercising regularly for? About a year, actually. I lost a lot of weight last year. Um, also, you know, for the guys who are watching who who, um, who are getting into poker and don't appreciate the time away, I mean, I can speak firsthand. I, I quite literally dropped out of school, played video games, was really unhealthy, put on a bunch of weight, right? I was the, um, like, epitome of a guy who was, was unfit and addicted to video games. And I, trust me, getting outdoors is just such a benefit and it doesn't even need to be that you go outdoors for hours and hours but just quite literally even just going for a 15 minute walk you will just feel so much better for it and all you've got to do i always think is just like all you got to do is put on the shoes and once you put on the shoes you'll, you'll leave the door you, you know no one puts on their shoes and then thinks ah oh, fuck it unless it's like you know shitting out outside and it's rubbish weather but all you got to do is put on the shoes and then you'll leave then you'll go for a nice walk and come back um and yeah just working out that kind of came over time at first it was just i want to get fit and I'm not motivated to do that by myself, so I hired a trainer. And then over time, I've uh, that's kind of come on leaps and bounds, and it's it's just it's gone from just wanting to lose weight to wanting to be fit to wanting to put on muscle. But that was a very gradual process. You know, I never actually thought I would actually want to put on muscle. I was just happy being fit. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of come on over time. I like that. I like the evolution from simply getting outdoors, getting some fresh air, to wanting to lose some weight, to wanting to get a bit fitter, to now want to put on muscle. It's like an evolution. And then I think the final kind of place to get to is where you exercise just because you want to feel good. You want to like just feel good in yourself. And I think along the way, you get more and more kind of snippets of yeah, kind of the, the kind of goals you want to achieve for fitness. But yeah, I think yeah, getting outdoors is a really, really big one. And myself, I go for a morning walk every day. And I got a dog recently. I think like a year ago, we found a dog, my, my girlfriend, and it wasn't in very good, good condition. We were going to look after it and then give it a foster home. But then once we got attached to it, and now I love the accountability every morning. The dog's like scratching the door going, come take it for a walk. 15, 20 minutes is generally the average walk day. And even though I live like five minutes from the beach, if it wasn't for the dog, there's no way I'd be going for as many walks as I do. So I basically don't miss a day. So uh, yeah, any excuse you can find to go for some sort of outdoor time, like you said, doesn't need to be a big commitment. And I can't think of any example of going for a walk where I was like, 
that was a waste of time. Shouldn't have done that. Almost always it's like a net positive in the short term. So uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things that you need to build it into the system of your day because it's, it's one of those things when you're in workflow, you're stressed out, you're doing stuff. Sometimes the last thing you want to do is actually just take a break and go for a walk, even though it's the best thing for you. So it's like building that rhythm in your day. I'm sure for you, like having it after your session consistently makes it easier to do because you know, okay, I've finished my session, go for the walk. Whereas you can't just pick apart the day where it goes randomly. So yeah, I think it's good to have that structure uh, throughout your day. So yeah, great stuff. Uh, Renny, you got any parting questions? Any final final questions on your mind? No, I think it's, uh, it's it, it makes a lot of sense, right? That if you gradu- gradually get more fit, you start to feel better. Yeah, you want to you want to feel even better and more often. So then you want to get even fitter, right? That's kind of the the addiction, I guess. That uh, try, starting to live healthier uh, kind of has an impact on you. I remember, for example, when I started to stop or significantly reduce drinking because I didn't want to waste a day hang, being hangover. I hate the feeling of being hangover and not being able to be productive. So nowadays, I rarely drink anymore because i like the way i feel so same for example i don't do any stimulus anymore nowadays because i just like to feel like the regular me and yeah i I think it makes a lot of sense once you start to feel better you don't want to go back Mm -hmm. yeah so do you have any final uh things that you would like to share luke um no i think the actually yeah one thing so there is a, I don't know if you could link this in the, in the description, Renee, but it'd be great if you could. Sure. There's a Renault's video that's free to watch. Mm-hmm. It's called my best advice to a low stakes grinder. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's basically, yeah, my, my best advice. So it come it, it includes things like bankroll management, game selection. Um, if you're going to play theory or exploit or both, but basic mainly not making you, um, kind of like feel overwhelmed by the decision. And yeah, um, that's a video that I feel strongly about. So if you are, I mean, it, honestly, it's it's tailored toward the the beginner poker players. But if you are even playing mid stakes, I think you could still learn a thing or two. Just sometimes, uh, even even very good players can kind of miss basic things like, hey, rake's really really high. Like on GG Poker, yeah. rake is super super high. Yeah, it's a really really popular site, and I think objectively that's just poor. Um, you mean even preflop, you're getting raked. So I think there was um, uh, a post the other day on on two plus two where something like of, of the 50 top volume grinders, uh, the majority of them are losing, whereas that's not true on every other site. So that speaks volumes just to uh, game selection right there and then, you know? So uh, yeah, that would be something that I would like to plug, if anything. I'm a, I'm a coach and run it once, but that one is is a free view. So if you, I think all you've right. got to do is make an account, but no money has to be parted. You can just make an account and then you can watch that one for free. All right, yeah, we'll make sure the, the link is here down below in the description. Great, thank you. Other than that, there was something that I didn't mention as well. Is um, going back a couple of years when you started the academy, mm-hmm. and you had um, guys like Tunis in your academy, right? Mm-hmm. There was an era, at least to me, maybe this is a short-term thing. You know, you sometimes you can have mm-hmm. the short-term friends with someone, and they're really, really tough. But there was an era, I think, around 2019, 2020, where mm-hmm. there was uh, Nietmar. Niet, yeah. Niet, am I saying his name right? Nietmar Chunis. Yeah, it, it, and... it's, a, it's, it's a Dutch name. So well, well, well pronounced. It literally says not two, but three, but then in Dutch. How do you so say So then you get niet twee, maar drie. Okay, not going to try that one. So you had that name, Tunis, which I'm probably saying wrong. And then another guy, um, Kempi? Steve. Kempi, yep. And then there Steve was Mobs. Steve Mobs there. Blue Four two? guys. Yeah, but I didn't find him too tough. 
okay. were the four guys. And I think there might have been one other guy as well. Um, MBR. Oh, MBR. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Those those guys were my nemesis for hey, a long time. We did a good because, job then. Because they were so annoying. I felt like I couldn't win. Um, so I want to, and also, and Tunis was a long time, you know, red line losing player. And then you, you turned him into red line crushing player, but like all lines winning. So I, I just want to say props to that because for a long that time, was a, that the was Dutch the goal. Crew, yeah. The Dutch crew, as, as I called them, were, were really, really, really tough. So that was, that was a hard time in poker where you kept, you, you trained all these guys. And that was back then, you weren't doing any Twitch or YouTube. You were just kind of everything was, no, secret. yeah. We were just like, focusing on, on, on improving them. Yeah. Yeah. So props to that. I think you were, you were like definitely market leaders at that point where there was the only things that I could see were your Instagram posts of everyone in a, in a, in like a, a conference, like a real life conference. Yeah. So yeah. That, because they were all Dutch. Like, so we were doing it live on location. Yeah. I, that, that was definitely like, I felt outclassed there props. That was really, really impressive. I really enjoyed um, being on the podcast. Glad that you finally did it after my downswing and recovery. Um, but yeah, it was it was nice to speak to you guys, not viewing you on a video, but actually being part of the conversation because I've listened to the other the other pods. What happened to the other, you? You made a few more, but they're they're gone on YouTube. I don't know if I can ask that, but I feel like there was more. Am I wrong? Are there? Did you make pods that have now been removed, or am I just completely misremembering? Ah, uh, no, we are probably referring to pods that we have already recorded, but that they're not yet uploaded yet. For example, ah, at the right. moment that we speak, okay, today the the pads episode will come on and in two weeks we will release the episode with dot and then two weeks from then you Got so okay. we were we were speaking about things we were in it yeah, you were you were talking about the renee from the future at some point in the episode yeah this was renee and adam from the future talking about right. episodes that you were like hey are they in a parallel universe what the fuck is going on time no. is very impressive so that explains that that explains it we usually uh sometimes have have someone on but then we upload it in a certain schedule okay. all right then uh, i would like to thank you for being on uh, there was a lot of wisdom i'm gonna repeat myself i usually say this towards the end but it's true uh, we also try to get guests on that we're very interested in having on so that's why i guess it's always an interesting conversation i really loved a couple of your your point of view, especially the variance one, really sticked with me. I'm sure I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna keep that one in my mind. That Olympic athletes, or I think Adam gave the example of Djokovic. Yeah, they have real variance. We as cash game players have nothing to complain about, basically. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I would like to thank you for being on, and I would like to thank. No, yeah, I would like to thank you for being on. No problem. I really enjoyed being here. What a bomb of wisdom did. Mr. Luke Clenty Johnson just drop on us. I mean, Adam, you as a mindset performance coach, I would say that this is the example of someone with the right mentality. Am I correct? 100%. I feel like we talked about a lot of kind of obstacles he faced in his career, but in all honesty, he never saw them that way. Basically, every time he approached anything that would be classed as a challenge for most players, he backed himself. He had a lot of self-belief. For example, moving up stakes very effortlessly, he instilled the confidence that I can beat this game. I'm good enough. And as a result, he didn't tell himself any negative stories about why the game was going to be too hard for him, why he couldn't beat it. If anything, he told himself the opposite. He said, because I beat the level below, I'll be able to beat the level above. And a common theme line throughout the whole conversation was almost being unaffected by anything that's going on around him, being very confident in his approach to poker, 
learning and proving. And almost like, I don't think we got one real big obstacle out of him in terms of some of that was classed as that was really, really challenging, really difficult for me because he just doesn't frame it that way. He never saw anything as a, something that he couldn't overcome. And then on top of that, he had this competitive drive where he always wants to get better at something. So when he's in a tough player pool, for example, that's when some people might start to doubt their game. For him, that turns on this hyper-competitive nature and he just wants to prove that he can actually beat these guys. And yeah, it was very interesting when you guys were talking about recreational players and he almost like switches off a bit. So uh, yeah, he really needs that competitive side of himself to, uh, to get better. So yeah, really, really good stuff about, yeah, I think the main ones I would got were having that instilled belief system that you can beat the games and you can make it make it work. You can find a way to get better. I've worked with hundreds of players now and it's very uncommon, right? So normally players will beat a stake and then they will go to the next stake and their confidence goes back to zero. It's almost like, oh, well, the stories start running, going, well, this, these guys are better, they're more aggressive, they're going to be hard to beat. And the talents have all these stories. So then they have a bit of bad variance. So they run into some tough scenarios and that reinforces a narrative that they already went in there with. He was the inverse of that. He was going in going, right, I can beat this game because I beat the last game. So I, there's, there's no way these guys are better than me. Even at the end, you, you talked about what you need to do to play the 10K games. And he said, I can beat them now. It was like straight up, I can beat them now. It just get me in that pool, just bang road thing. So uh, even to the this very days, he's reinforcing, I'm good enough now. Not in the future, I'm good enough right now to beat the game. So uh, yeah, really, really good. And the final thing for me was his ability to play to his strengths. So he, he credited Solvers quite a lot. But I think the self-awareness to know, wait a second, I'm very, very good at learning strategies this way by using solvers and, and like basically trying to see how they, the heuristics he was seeing of, of their players, that works really, really well for me. So I'm going to build my whole game around that. I'm really, really going to get good at that. In the creative side, which I'm not good at, forget it. I'm not even going to try to get good at being creative or intuitive. Obviously, he did say that he's got some intuitive nature but in general he's based in his game much more around a gt to a, to a framework which is very similar to what the conversation we had with pads in a previous po podcast when he was basically saying be a good version of you don't be a bad version of somebody else and i think clancy's really enforced that he's become a very very good version of him he's become a very very good logical thinker using gto frameworks and that's how he's optimized his performance so yeah really impressed with everything about clancy and his approach to poker i think the mindset is super super strong like definitely getting good grades from me on his overall approach how about yourself Rene? what were some of the takeaways from the conversation yeah and i wanted to highlight that so throughout your career right you face obstacles and i'm sure he has faced as well but exactly he didn't tell himself that story or he didn't get lost in that story and it didn't become a self-fulfilling prophecy whereas you said you take a shot at high stake and you're looking for a reason why you don't belong here you take a shot at 100 nl but you're looking for a reason why you don't belong here you find yourself in a spot where you don't know what to do yeah you see i'm not yet ready go back to safety to 50 nl he didn't have that Okay, and he clearly said, yeah, what this differentiated me was I didn't put a cap on the stake that I was going to play, right? A lot of people cap themselves unconsciously probably, right, due to fear. So this is definitely something, uh, if, you, if you struggle, that's definitely, uh, definitely something you would need to work on. Um, also in terms of, uh, I mean, we heard the name Stefan, right? Uh, also, I think in the last podcast with Dutt, uh, usually rated as one of the better players, very aggressive and in general, just very hard to play very aggressive uh, players. So if you have trouble with aggression, definitely something also you should try to dig deeper into. Where is the resistance coming from uh, in regards to aggression? Also, uh, I really liked his thought on variance, right? He said, yeah, most poker players, we think that we have such high variance, but then he put it that in perspective by comparing 
it with, for example, the World Cup. It's only you. You could train for four years. You're still dependent on 10 other people. Yeah, that's crazy. So next time I hit variance, I'm going to have perspective, uh, realizing that other players have it way worse than me. Great stuff. Thank you, Adam, for being here with me today. Thank you again to Luke. And thank you to you guys for listening to this pod. I would like to see you again in the next episode. This was us. Go crush the tables. Now, if you learned something in this episode, we would much appreciate it if you like and subscribe. Leave a comment with your main takeaways. Give us a five-star rating and follow the pod. This way we can reach more players and help them reach their big and ambitious poker goals. And if you want us to help you get to those goals, go over to pokerambition.com to find out more.